world, and welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy, and boy, do we have a fun one this week. We've got something very special in store for you, as uh, those of you who follow the uh, Twitter account, uh, Here's a Guy Pod at Twitter.com, um, I referenced, we've got a couple special things going on. We have a very special guest and also a special theme, and the theme is one we've already done before, but hey, we're doing it again, so that's pretty cool. Um, so let's go around the horn here to start off. Um, I'm Alex, as always, coming to you live here from St. Louis. Um, I'm joined by three hosts this week, um, and we'll start with our regular two. First of all, coming to us from Illinois, my older brother, Cody. Cody, how are you? Good. Um, I had kind of an unusual experience today that I wanted to get out of the way up top and, and get your thoughts on. Sure. So okay. for work today, I had a meeting with a client, and... It was in the office of a real estate broker that was located inside a Papa John's pizza. Did you get any money out of it? I don't know if I want to live in this country anymore. I just, I don't know. That is the most American thing I've ever heard of. Also, if you're getting, like, your mortgage from inside of a Papa John's, you you don't need a house. It's it's okay. Where'd you you buy one? Where'd you find that great house, Papa John's? (laughs) No t- one has ever said that. It turned out this person is going to be one of our most consistent listeners. And, um, I'm but hoping he at least uh, buys something from me. So. If, if you run a non-Papa John's business inside of a Papa John's, I, I think you can't be too thin-skinned. That's my take on that. Yeah. Um, that, I'm that also will just be in a mall kiosk at that point. <laughs> a mall kiosk has more dignity. Um, and that guy <laughs> you just heard talk, uh, my other usual co-host coming to us from Indianapolis, it's Jack John. Jack John, how are you this week? Um, today is awful. I spent the first half of my day finally doing my taxes, and then I had to research something terrible for the show. So I'm just, I'm on a very, very high mental wave right now. And we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so if you're doing the math, that's, that's, uh, two other co-hosts. And I said there were three. So what could that possibly mean? Good thing I'm here. What that could possibly mean, he's been waiting very patiently, not saying anything. And I'm sure he's loving me dragging this out as long as possible. We are joined by my good friend and friend of the show, John Fleming. You may know him, uh, former writer for Viva Albertos. He runs the St. Louis Bullpen blog and my former podcast co-host on my first podcast, the St. Louis Bullpen Show, which uh, had a run from uh, 2019 into 2020. So we're so excited to have John on. I know he listens to the show um, and, uh, you know, I, I just for, for we're talking about baseball this week again. Let's get that out of the way. And to talk about baseball guys, John has more of a recollection of baseball guys than anybody that I know. Um, and so, uh, John, how, how are you feeling being on the show so far? I'm very excited to be here. Really looking forward to finding out who the special guest you keep uh, pumping up is. I <laughs> uh, had, a, had a great experience at Papa John's earlier today, and I'm just settled in, ready to talk about some guys. <laughs> there you go. Got your new loan documents. you got a house. You're ready to go. Yeah. So, uh, as I mean, we're, we're talking about baseball this week. Um, obviously, the season started last week. We were, we were all a bit worried it wasn't going to happen, but it did. Um, and so we're going to do kind of a season preview for all of you at the best possible time, uh, five days into the season. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll, we'll, we'll touch on a bunch of things, I think. But um, for some context, we, we've talked about our baseball allegiances a little bit. John, like Cody and myself, a huge Cardinals fan, um, which means Jack John is even more outnumbered than he usually is. Um, Jack John, a fan of the Marlins. At least we don't have Mitch on to beat up on him for his Cubs allegiance. Um, 
we never get anything else done. We wouldn't no. get to any of our guys. We'd just be ripping on Mitch until he it, cried and left the Discord. I was saying, call. Mitch would it, probably it, not be friends with us anymore it, after. It wouldn't even have to be baseball. I think we would just naturally pile up on Mitch. Right. Um, so we'll uh, let's get into, you know, it's a 2022 season. As I mentioned, we had the, the uh, lockout in the offseason. Um, we're all a bit worried about what effect that was going to have on the season. Thankfully, uh, other than having to reschedule some games, we seem to be on the right path. Um, so let's let's get into what we're most and least looking forward to this season. And, and John, you're our guest, so we'll start with you. I would say the thing that I'm most looking forward to this season, uh, the presence of a season is, is certainly nice. Yeah. Um, that, that's pretty good. Uh, as far as the season, like you mentioned, I'm a Cardinals fan first and foremost. I mm-hmm. follow the sport generally, but ultimately it's going to come down to that. And I kind of just... I'm curious how the Cardinals are going to do after they spent the first four and a half to five months of last year just completely treading water and being yeah. a very average team. And then they went on the longest winning streak in the history of the franchise. Yeah. And they had the, the I, they played the best month of baseball that we will probably ever see. I suspect that that probably won't happen again, but I am curious to see where they kind of find their level. Most of the team is the same as it was last year. You can take that as good or bad, depending on... Right. Whether you're content with just making the playoffs and not going very far, but well, <laughs> there's some young guys, there's some very old guys, and it's just kind of a matter of seeing where they end up. <laughs> I, I like yeah. I like looking at the lineup and seeing Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina on the days when Albert Pujols starts, and then like a couple batters behind them, like Harrison Bader and Tommy Edmond. So like genuinely two of the fastest guys in the game behind two of the absolute dog shit slowest should create for some fun scenarios. Um, actually, before we we get any further, I'll, I'll just talking about our, our Cardinals allegiance. I should give some background on how exactly John and I came to know each other. Um, I, for a long time, was very involved in this community um, called Viva Albertos, which was this Cardinals. It was the Cardinals SB Nation blog, essentially. But for whatever reason, everybody who like wrote and participated in the comment sections were all like very close to, with each other and became like friends even outside of the blog. And that's how I got to know um, a couple of our mutual friends, um, our, like our friends Groby, our friends Gabe, and um, started following John on Twitter. And eventually, with a bunch of us, became this sort of collective called Weird Cardinals Twitter. Um, and we got into some absolute shenanigans in like that 2015, 2017 range. Um, what were some of our greatest hits, John? I mean, I like making it a big trend talking about the fact that Alfredo Simon killed a guy. That was, was that was probably say, our best. <laughs> the, the constant references to Alfredo Simon killing a guy and the fact that multiple people got, got blocked by Kurt Schilling, which admittedly not the hardest yeah, block in the I got world to obtain on Twitter. No, yeah. But, uh, just the fact that it really upset people to hear that Alfredo Simon killed a guy. Just like, well, he did, though. That's the thing. Really? He did. Yeah, it's don't like, don't go after it. the people referencing Alfredo yeah. Simon killing the guy. If you want Alfredo yeah. Simon to stop getting talked about for killing guys, you should ask yeah. him to stop killing guys. I do want to say, I know one thing about Alfredo Simon, and that is that he killed a guy. Correct. I actually, I remember how it, it played out the, the night that this was huge. Um, like, I feel like the MLB Twitter account maybe mentioned something about Alfredo Simon, and... Everybody just jumped in, responding, he killed a guy. 
<laughs> and so I was actually flying out to Washington, the state of Washington that day. And I had a layover in the Seattle airport. And I pull up Twitter and I see this. I see MLB tweeted about Alfredo Simon. I'm like, well, some of my friends probably responded to this. And I pull it up and it is dozens, if not hundreds of replies. He killed a guy. <laughs> Alfredo Simon killed a guy. He did. Um, it was all in that exact tone, too. It wasn't like people were saying, actually, this pitcher several years ago in the Dominican Republic yeah. murdered. It was, no, it was just he killed a guy. He killed a guy. Over and over. <laughs> because really, you don't, you don't need to elaborate any further. Yeah. That just is very literally what happened. Yeah. yeah. You do the, the Laura Bush killed a guy from Family Guy. I love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um that yeah, and, also and literally true. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we did a lot of our best bits involve. Well, you can't really call the Alfredo Simon thing slander because it is true, but there was some <laughs> slander, I guess, depending on your outlook, uh, Jake Arietta, um, um, spreading the rumor that might've been true that he was using steroids was, <laughs> that was also. Yeah. Be clear. I'm very pro players doing steroids. So I'd even consider that slander. People want to interpret that slander after his like post twenty sixteen election tweets, then so be it. I'll just allow that to be the uh, now the, the official verdict. Now this did not involve us, but I, I I'd be remiss in my duty if I didn't mention. I think the best bit of slander that anyone who was ever involved in Weird Cardinals Twitter ever did before any of us knew him. Uh, my law school friend James, aka Casual Observer. Um, when he was going to uh, pharmacy school down in Alabama, um, attempted and got some traction, but it didn't quite take off, attempted to spread the rumor that Dan Mullen's a Scientologist. <laughs> I don't know why he decided to do that. So but he random. Did. I think I missed that one, but I'm in favor of it regardless. That, that was like I said, that was before either of us had met him. He, he told me that one, and like he tried to spread it on some forums, and it just didn't, it didn't quite take off. Um. So yeah, that's the story of Weird Cardinals Twitter, essentially. I mean, we were just a bunch of shit posters. Um, we had a ton of fun. Yeah, we earned some high-profile blocks. I mean, Schilling and... Um, is it Heyman? Is Heyman the baseball writer who blocks absolutely everybody? Or is it... He blocks um, some people. He, he doesn't have me blocked, am I thinking so maybe of, I just am I thinking of, hard enough for it. Am I thinking of Passan? I think Passan's a little bit more laid back than that. I mean, Passan, like, jokes about the fact that whenever the... Uh, Labor agreement got reached. He got hacked by an NFT guy, yeah. like during yeah. developments. I can't imagine the guy who voices Elmo would would block you. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, wh- whichever one of those guys blocks everybody, I got blocked by. My rarest and most proudest block, I will get to in a bit, um, because there's a connection there. But we'll we'll continue on. Um, Cody, what are you like most and least looking forward to this season, or do you have any other in- thoughts going into the season? You know, um, what I am most looking forward to this season, um, again, I am a Cardinal fan, so obviously I want to see them wind up on top of the division. But I'm really curious to to see how the rest of the NL Central winds up. I know Milwaukee's been building a monster for a little while, and maybe this is their year to finally perform. I'm curious to see what the Cubs can salvage after their fire sale last year. Um, I know they've got some players they're pretty high on, so I want to see how they do. Pittsburgh's going to suck, whatever. Yeah, that's just going to happen. But those other couple teams and Cincinnati potentially could be interesting in in a couple of ways. So they went full fire sale, but they do have like they do have like 
a couple of interesting young players, though. Mm-hmm. They got some prospects they're really high on. So I really want to see what the NL Central looks like after a full season. Does the Reds' owner count as an interesting guy based oh, on his... Uh, yeah, let's talk movie. about him. Holy mm-hmm. sh- holy moly, what a quote he gave today. Wow. <laughs> I mean, what an absolute shithead. John, I'm going to go to your Twitter to pull up the exact quote. Um, I, don't, I don't remember the exact quote either, but it was just... He said the quiet part loud. Yeah, for, here... Uh, because I, I, I remember because you quote tweeted it and called it, and I'll quote you, absolutely vile garbage is what you called it, and I can't disagree. Um, Phil Castellini... So the, the context of the Reds is that, like, NL Central is not an insurmountably strong division. And the Reds were, like, it seemed like they were going to be fairly good yeah. at one point last year. They just slumped down the stretch, and they just went full if, fire if they sale. Had the 16, yeah. If they had the 16 playoff like they do this year, they would have made the playoffs last yeah. year. They were, like, pretty close. Yeah, and they, after all that hope, they didn't retain Nick Castellanos. They sold off a bunch of their other players. I mean, they're just... Not trying, clearly. Yeah, Castellanos and Suarez, the only two consistent bats, and Winker, the only three yeah. consistent bats in that lineup, all just... So... Just waved Wade Miley, who was their best pitcher last year. Yeah. A... So, Reds owner Phil Castellini today asked about upset Reds fans, said, and I quote, Where are you going to go? Let's start there. Sell the team to who? <laughs> what would you do with this team to have it be more profitable? It would, it would be to pick it up and move it somewhere else, so be careful what you ask for. What an absolute shithead. (laughs) It's like, you usually don't hear the owners just say that out loud. We know they think that. You just like, I'm just imagining him just like smashing two like fifths of whiskey. And he's just like, look, I don't want to be in fucking Cincinnati either. What else do you want me to do about it? You know what? This is two separate Reds owners throughout history who I could see being a podcast subject because of what a shitbag they were. Actually, somewhere deep on the list, I actually... Somewhere deep on my possible topic oh, list, I actually too. do have Marge Shot. Yeah. Yeah. In she's fact, on I, mine. I might yeah. just let you have that one. Um, considered Marge Shot, but she felt like she felt a little too famous. <laughs> we the, in the ground rules for what qualifies as hard. I think we've got enough youth listening to this podcast, yeah. people about our age, that there's probably quite a few who won't really have a, a <laughs> good understanding of just how vile she was. See, Cody and I, we never had a great gauge on how famous Marge Schott actually was because we grew up with a dad who listened to the Bob and Tom show regularly. Um, mm-hmm. So that, and that was one of their favorite punching bags consistently. Um, she, she was a recurring character yes. and Jack, if, if I can, I will send you some of the clips of the, the Marge Schott bits yeah. because they are fucking hysterical. I will say I'm unfamiliar with her, so if you want to use her for a topic, go ahead. I oh. will be completely oblivious. <laughs> oh, man. We'll come back for whatever episode that is. <laughs> yeah. I, I, we, can do, we can do our next baseball episode on that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, we've learned that, like... Episode on her. We, we've learned that, like... I mentioned that there's different, like, subtopics that are really ripe for guys and gals to talk about. And we, we've had several, like, scientists is, is one of the big ones, but baseball... Even outside of the baseball topics, I mean, it's just a rich territory. There's so many guys who've come through, um, right? So and and yeah, we we've already had the the red zoner making himself a guy. Only like what three years after Tom Brenneman made himself a guy, um, and a meme on top of that. Um, oh god! So yeah, the Reds pretty. We were saying earlier that, that Jack's Marlins are maybe the guy of baseball teams. The Reds are up there as well, though. 
with the Marlins, you at least know their shit. Like, we never have hope. And that's what allows us to stay, yeah. like, under everyone's radar. Because, I mean, we're shit. But we know we're shit. And more on that in a bit. But first, Jack, um, yes. is there anything you're, you're like, particularly looking forward to, not looking forward to this season? So I, I don't get to watch a ton of Marlins baseball. One, because I don't live in Florida, so I, I would have to pay for their games. And I'm not in yeah. that sort of self-torture. Right. Uh, so yeah, I watch what I can. Um, and, and, and let, and let me just establish for context, as we mentioned last episode, you are the guy who put together an impossible puzzle, attempted to put one together for 14 straight hours only for it to blow up at the end. And you did the one chip challenge in the middle of it. And you are not, and paying for Marlins games is too much torture for you. Yes. I would rather build a solid white puzzle and eat the one chip challenge than watch like more than 10 Marlins games a year. I'll watch a little bit if I can. If, if I can, like, find one in passing because, like, a NL Central team's playing them, I'll watch a little bit of it. I'll watch the Marlins go down three in the first couple innings. Sure. I'm used to it. Uh, I will say, though, the Marlins are currently one and three. All right. Uh, they're, when this podcast started recording, they were winning 1-0. So maybe they'll get their second win of the year. Probably not. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict the Marlins make the playoffs for the fourth time in their illustrious franchise this year. That's my big, bold prediction. Uh, which will definitely not happen. They're going to lose 95 games. Well, this is a pretty good chance if they do make the playoffs and they will win the World Series. Yeah, 66% <laughs> chance they win the whole damn thing. Um, you do, I mean, Jazz Chisholm is a fun player. You got that yeah. going yeah. for you. He's got yeah. a fun name, if nothing else. You, I, I'll get into it later when I talk about my like mini topic. As to why... I'm not excited about young Marlins anymore, and it's because the Marlins ruin them for me. Uh, yeah. Well, more... yeah, the Marlins just sell them somewhere else is what they do. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I mean, Jazz Chisholm, to be fair, might have the best spoonerism in Major League Baseball. I was thinking about that. I'm <laughs> like, how often the... does that happen? In Buck Farmer being fuck Barmer is pretty damn good. <laughs> that was <too>. pretty good, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, they're the top two in some order. Um, yeah, Ch- Chaz Jism sounds like... <laughs> A, a 70s porno yeah. star. It might have been. Yeah. That was the name uh, of the John C. Riley character in Boogie Nights, if yeah. I remember correctly. <laughs> um, so for me, like, well, sort of the thing I'm not looking forward to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this because it's like not very fun to talk about. At some point that I will presume happen this season, the, the league is going to have some, they're going to have to reckon with what to do with Trevor Bauer. Um, Maybe my least favorite baseball player, um, and also my proudest Twitter block. I earned that one years ago. He was, he, I, I just remember he was on some weird tangent about supply side economics or some shit, and a bunch of us started trolling him. Um, and uh, I earned that block, which is a little bit harder to get, but that was back when I, he was just like an annoying barstool guy and not a genuinely terrible person, or at least we didn't know that he was a genuinely terrible person, so, um, not excited to, to deal with that whenever that happens. What I am excited about... Poss- go ahead. I was going to say, is it possible that Trevor Bauer listens to this podcast? Because Trevor Bauer is the most chronically online person <laughs> I've ever met. I am well acquainted with myself. Yes. So I'm trying to wrap my head... Like, I feel like he must listen to... Maybe he has like like a staff that listens to mm-hmm. podcasts, and if they hear the name Trevor Bauer, it's like... You may want to listen and see if it's a woman that's talking and then yell at her on the internet. 
Well, well thank- just in in the possible eventuality that he does, in fact, listen to this podcast. Hey, Trevor Bauer, fuck you. We all hate you. <laughs> Trevor Bauer, enemy of the pod. Add him to the list. I'm going to say, first of all, if he doesn't like listening to, to women podcasts, then uh, boy, is he in luck with this show, because I don't think we're ever yeah. going to convince a woman to host. Um, <laughs> uh, also, so we-, we finally have an assembly of white guys available for the <laughs> Trevor Bauer role. Yes. Really feel at peace listening. I like that even our expanded roster is like as... as minimally diverse as possible we've had three groups and we've added three different white guys we need to get fucking daryl on is what we need to do oh god because not only not only will that finally give us some diversity but also it's it's daryl yes um, yeah i i want him to be eating the whole time though. yeah <laughs> we, yeah, we, we could arrange that for us <clears throat> um also, we have had a total of one listen ever from the state of california so if that was him he only listened once <laughs> Apparently he heard enough. What he, I, he tuned in to Here's a Gal and said, no, this is too much. <laughs> what I am looking forward to is um, outside of just, you know, the, the Cardinals do have like a core of really exciting players as well as like the veteran farewell tour. So I'm excited for that. I, as much as I hate, it, hate to admit it, the AL East is an incredibly fascinating division. That race just in general is going to be um, fantastic to watch. Other than the Orioles who are like hilariously bad. Yeah, um, at least you know you can get some amusement out of that. Uh, at least until they trade Trey Mancini and or Cedric Mullins, um, that will be a bummer. But outside of that, yeah, I'm just excited to see what any what weird, fascinating stories come up. Every yeah. season, guys make guys out of themselves. We mentioned the Red Zoner. Um, I think maybe my favorite in-season baseball just weird story of all time um, was the Pablo Sandoval thing. If you remember a few years ago, where someone like connected the dots and realized that during a game he was like down in the toilet like uh, uh liking thirst traps on instagram yeah yeah god that's perfect <laughs> perfect um well, martinez had a similar incident to that a few years ago it wasn't <laughs> during a game but right someone just noticed that all of carlos martinez's <clears throat> likes were um ted cruzian i guess you could put it <laughs> yeah. like further enemies you know, I, one of my favorite, as far as, like, in-game loafing goes, was the uh, late aughts Red Sox, where turned out <laughs> some of the guys were, like, in the clubhouse drinking beer and eating fried chicken and watching TV during the games, like, if they weren't pitching that day. I think it was Josh Beckett, most John notably. Lackey who was Surely that John day, Lackey was yeah. doing it. I can't imagine he wasn't. I would be more surprised yep. if he didn't drink beer and eat chicken during games. Um. Yeah, he wasn't pitching that day, so he was just down in the clubhouse fucking off. Why not? That's baseball at its finest. That's what all the fans are fucking doing. That's true. Um, You know who's an Instagram-liking fiend? Is my guy Lars Newtbar. Like, every time I pull up something that's like... Like, one of the official, like, sports leagues accounts, or, like, some team, or, like, even, like, wrestling stuff, like, I'll just see, liked by Lars Newtbar. Lars Newbar likes fucking everything on Instagram. And yet, he didn't like the picture of the two of us that I, I took and posted and tagged him in. I still love I still love him, but... I love when professional athletes have incredibly, like, corny social media presences, and he's just like, oh, this sports league posted a thing, I must <laughs> like it. Like, whenever uh, Jack Flaherty was first starting to come out, like, in, like Black Lives Matter and different yeah. social issues and stuff... I figured I'll, I'll follow him on Twitter, and it turns out he's mostly just like retweeting like Kobe Bryant stan accounts all day, which yeah. is a, <laughs> a real problem. But yeah, you got to turn off the RTs yeah. on on Flaherty. <laughs> he was just tweeting with uh, Chad. Uh, 
well, Chad Ochocinco Johnson. I don't know if he's back at Johnson, but you know who I'm talking about. I think he's Johnson again. He was tweeting with Chad Johnson. Chad Johnson said something like, I can't remember what player is in reference to, but like, he was like, is this the only interesting baseball player? And Jack Flaherty tweeted at him like, you just don't watch enough baseball, apparently. And apparently they're going to they're gonna hang out when uh, Jack's down in Miami. So, huh, um, neat. There, wow. There's already been a great guy moment in this season so far that is relevant to, the, to this podcast. We talked about Philly sports fans on episode, I believe, two. Um, yes. Yep. And um, the thing, uh, I think last night, Alec Baum, who is a, a young third baseman for the Phillies, who is a big prospect and has, has been, you know, a bit up and down so far in his career, especially with fielding. Um, he, like, didn't make an error on a play last night, uh, threw a guy out at first and got a sarcastic cheer from the home crowd and and uh the camera zoomed in on him you can clearly see him mouth the words i fucking hate this place <laughs> yeah um and to the point where like they asked him about it in the the um post game he was like yeah i said that i didn't mean it but i said it <laughs> like you're lying out your ass dude you hate it there. i mean to to be fair is there anybody who has spent more than 10 minutes in a sports stadium in philadelphia who has not at least thought that exact same thing <laughs> Um, I, I'd be shocked if there was. Hey, he's he's just... like that he's kind of taking the opposite track of like James Harden and um, Bryce Harper lately, kind of just sucking up to Philly fans, talking about how hardworking they are. He's like, no, fuck these guys. Yeah. It's kind of you know, try to zig while everyone else is zagging. Yeah, the, the the whole point he was getting at is like, yeah, they're great fans, but they are annoying. Um, which, uh, yeah, that, that's probably an understatement if you're familiar with the story of Puke Man. So. <laughs> Um, of all the things we've talked about, still maybe the most fucked up thing on the history of the show is Puke Man. I, I wish I didn't know what that was. I looked that really bothered the you days before I'd heard that story. In particular, that really got under your skin, and it's hard to yeah. bother you. So. <laughs> I can't believe it didn't bother you guys that much. This man used vomit as a weapon against a child apropos <laughs> of nothing. That is the most fucked up thing I've ever heard in my entire life. It's pretty bad. Um... So, yeah, that, that's kind of what's going on in the world of baseball. You know, I'm excited for the season. I mean, just something about the threat of not having a season and also kind of like the unity, like people really coalesced around, you know, correctly, like supporting labor in the labor dispute. Seems like it should be a pretty easy ask, and yet um, apparently not for everybody. So, um, but that, yeah, it just made me appreciate the season even more so far. So I am excited for it. Um, let's swing back around to Jack John. Jack John isn't doing a regular topic this week, um, but uh, to make up for it, I have asked him to uh, do a, a short segment for all of us. Jack John, would you care to share with us your top three most painful Marlins moments? And we'll, we'll add the asterisk to this, that this does not involve like any genuine tragedies. <laughs> and yes, you probably yes. know which one I'm talking about. So I was going to say. I, but, I texted Alex and I was like, I'm going to do the not obvious one yeah, as number one. Yeah. Well, so and, this this is aside. Nobody, the most painful Marlins moments that don't involve anybody dying. Let's, yes. let's do that one. Uh, I'm not really going to rank them. I'm just going to almost go kind of chronological sure. of pain. Uh, I do want to say, though, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with the Marlins, this is a team that in its very, very brief career, they started as a franchise in fucking 1993. In that time, they've had four Rookie of the Years, three Manager of the Years, eight, dif- uh, eight different Gold Glove winners, and ten different Silver Sluggers. 
This team has had fucking stars. Is why yeah. it's so painful. Um, but one of the biggest things uh, that Marlins ownership, and this spans all of the different owners, uh, is they don't want to pay players ever. Um, that is, yes. Yeah, yes. That's the problem. Um, also, uh, to really illustrate this, from 1993 to 2021, I didn't have this year's uh, data, but basically, uh, in terms of spending across the entire league, they've been in the top 10 twice, ranking at number seven in spending on players both times. Interesting. Uh, and one of those times was 1997, and they fucking won the World Series from it. So you would think yeah. they would understand <laughs> that paying wins. One would think. It, it turns out that when you pay really good players to play for your team, your team wins more. Yeah. Yes. Strange and, how that um, works. Just to, just to also kind of put how badly this uh, has been, um, they've been in the bottom 25 or less uh, teams, which is a very small amount of teams. In the 29 times that's been possible, they've been at the bottom 25, like 25 or less mm-hmm. 21 times. The, the Marlins are a cautionary tale in a lot of different ways. Yes. <laughs> um, yep. So uh, after 97, when the Marlins win the World Series, we'll just kind of go kind of into number two. The first one was a general, I hate this franchise's ownership. Sure. Number two is a more specific example. And that's uh, after the Marlins won the title in 97. They basically went, hey, we essentially did a four-year build. Baseball's fucking easy. So in November, they fire-sailed the fucking team immediately after winning. Mm Mm-hmm. And they got rid of these names specifically. Oh, Jeff Conine, Edgar Renteria, Moises Alou, Gary Sheffield, and L. Leiter. Thank you for Edgar Renteria, by the way. <laughs> that worked out great for us. Yeah. Um, so if you're wondering, well, what was the return on investment? Um, the Marlins got back through those various trades. Uh, I think it was like 20 players. Two of them were of note. They were Derek Lee and A.J. Burnett. Two good players. Okay. Braden um, Looper erasure. <laughs> Dude, Brad, didn't Braden Looper win like 10 games as a bullpen pitcher one year? When one of the like really dumb Cardinals seasons? Yeah. That sounds he like some he, shit. I, I, thought he was, I thought he was starting that season. I don't remember. That, that sounds like some shit that would have happened in 2010, but I don't think it was 2010. I think it was before that. I'm not sure. My go-to Braden Looper fun fact is he's the highest drafted Cardinal ever. That is a ball. that is a fun fact. We don't draft <laughs> high often, yeah. but when we do, we get Braden Luke. Yeah, college relievers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, of all the players that the Marlins got back in that first big fire sale, most of them did not last more than four years with the team. So there was no longevity in like future planning or anything in that. And my last big I hate this team moment is basically the exact same thing, but. More recent, because history is a flat circle and time isn't real. Uh, Basically, when Derek Jeter took over the team and his media conglomerate of dumbasses in 2017, technically, one of these isn't his fault. Uh, Jose Fernandez did pass away the year before, but as soon as basically Jeter's group of dickheads takes over, the team then trades Giancarlo Stanton, Marcelo Zuna, D. Gordon, and Christian fucking Yelich. Yeah. Why do I care about this team? <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, you did argue, you could argue you won 
the Azuna yeah. trade. <laughs> you got oh, yeah, you got true. Sandy Alcantara back, right? But the Marlins refuse to keep good players because players want money, and you know who they doesn't want money is people yeah. who came from farm leagues and were making twelve dollars an hour. They had maybe the best. They had one of the best outfields, both defensively and offensively, in the league with Stanton, yeah. Ozuna, and Yelich. I literally and they made just sold a, them all. At one point, I was going to make a hypothetical best Marlins <laughs> team, and then it just made me sad. But literally, I have because I was looking from like 2012 to 2015, and I have Yelich, Ozuna, Giancarlo Stanton. You could have had Hamley Ramirez, Hamley D. Gordon. Ramirez, yeah. um, we had fucking Devon Rodriguez at one point. I hate the Marlins. <laughs> And yet, there you are in your your lovely teal Marlins jersey. Yes, the best color in all sports. I yeah, I mean the Marlins have always uh, well, ex- with the exception that really that Jeter era was not. Those yeah. uniforms were pretty bad, but outside of that, Marlins the, have always the throwbacks had a good are such a beautiful color, and that's why all indeed. my Marlins jerseys are free moved to Miami. Well, thank you for that, Jack John, and sorry for yes. making you relive so many painful moments. My hate for you went plus one today. Well, look, it's what you get for taking the week off, partially. <laughs> I make you experience psychological pain. That's how it right? goes. Um, so thank you for that, Jack, John. And to wrap up our, our, our opening segment, let's go around the horn. I do want to get everybody's World Series predictions. Call your shot. Um, who is going to defeat who in the World Series? John, how about you? I'm going to go uh, somewhat boring. I'm going to say that the uh, Dodgers defeat the Blue Jays hmm. and uh, Trevor Bauer gets a World Series ring and we're all very happy about it. And... <laughs> Cody, Blue how about Jays you? Blue Jays so much fun, so obviously it can't happen. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I also have the Dodgers making it, but they always find some way to fuck things up right at the end, which I love. So I'm going to go with... Uh, Yankees over Dodgers, which I also hate. So yeah, yeah how much did that hurt you to say that? It's a Sophie's choice. Yeah, yeah. It, it just I I will probably be watching that World Series because I compulsively have to if the World Series is on. But I'm just gonna be drinking angrily and swearing. <laughs> yeah. Jack Sean, what about you? Uh, I'm Team Chaos. Marlins over the Orioles in seven <laughs> painful games. I, I'm gonna propose a hypothetical, and this maybe is one for. This one for the true baseball nerds, maybe some people who love stats even even more than than all of us do. Is it possible for the Orioles to win the World Series this year? Like within the realm of of realism, is there even a chance the Orioles? I know they're not going to. Is it even possible for this to happen scientifically? <laughs> I mean, if if the right midseason trades were made and they managed to just squeak into the playoffs like the Cardinals did in 2011, <laughs> they could go on a rampage like the Cardinals did in 2011. I mean, once you're in there, anything can happen in postseason yeah. baseball. Maybe, maybe they'll get the uh, like how the Marlins got in during the COVID <coughs> year, and the season will somehow be 40 games, and they'll get lucky and be 20 and 20 at that point. Uh, they do have some good prospects. Like maybe Adley Rutschman just comes up and just absolutely wrecks um, things. But I think it's more likely that they go on a run. They miss the playoffs by one game. <laughs> and it's because they kept Adley Rutschman in the minors for two and a half weeks because they didn't want to pay him. Over under on the Blue Jays missing the playoffs because their catcher got caught jerking off in public again. <laughs> you think the odds are on that one? 
Who is their starting catcher now? It's Reese McGuire was the, the yeah. kid that got caught. Hey, listen. You know. Uh, well, look, he's done. He did great work for the world. He did start Coney 2012. So, um, <laughs> wrong city. Speaking of guys, my God. Um, for me, um, because I know how these things go. Here's my prediction specifically. All year, we're gonna get teased by these possible, exciting, slightly different teams that could go and go on a run and win it. Say, for example, like the Blue Jays. Perhaps the the Brewers, um, but or the White Sox would be a, a fun one. But at the end of the day, it'll be just fucking Dodgers and Yankees in the World Series, and Dodgers are going to win. That's I know how these things go. Yeah, that would not be literally the most depressing option. The most <laughs> depressing option I would posit would be um, that the World Series would be the Braves and the Cleveland Guardians. Um. No, for for me, if the Cubs made it, it would still be worse. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. I mean, just just Braves and Guardians because Sox. of these, these sordid racial yeah. history involved. Yeah. But you get Cubs White Sox just so Chicago can be even more insufferable. Yeah, yeah. My weirdly optimistic prediction regarding the Yankees is that they missed the playoffs by one game because half their team can't play in Toronto because they're not vaccinated. <laughs> that is something oh. that, that that the world has going for them. Yes. Um. I mean, can you imagine being fucking Aaron Judge and looking like Aaron Judge and being scared of a needle? What he would yeah, just the guy looks a... like an Easter Island head. Yeah. Like what? What do you think this needle's gonna do to you? Um, also, he's almost a free agent, so he's gonna make like hundreds of millions of dollars if he just like kind of just does the straight and narrow for a few months. And uh, I don't know. I guess he just doesn't want to for sure very valid scientific base reasons yeah. i'm sure he did the research and i, I just yeah. love last year how that's the line that you always get from anti-vaxxers but then like last summer um the cardinals resident meathead tyler o'neill like he actually did the research and actually decided to get vaccinated after that <laughs> like he was the one guy that that actually worked for yeah. he actually did it right yeah. he meant it the whole time i think we need to just put a full-on ban on professional athletes listening to joe rogan for the next couple years at least <clears throat> you probably that seems to be where a lot of people that seems to be where a lot of these problems come from i have a feeling he might have played uh, a part in judge's decision because he seems like that kind of guy so uh yeah we've, we've been rambling on for a while now and as much as i'd love to ramble on about baseball that's not what we're here for john do you know what we're here for I, I think we're eventually going to meet the uh, the other guests, but I think we're here to talk about some fucking guys, aren't we? One of those two things is true. We're we are here to talk about some guys. So, Jack John, since your 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 voice is going to be extra strong this week with you not having to to give your own topic, I'm expecting a good performance from you here. That's a terrifying prospect. Help me out. You, yeah, I think I remember. It's uh, the guys. You know that actually was pretty good. I'll give you that. <clears throat> So we got another three-pack of baseball topics this week, and we'll start with me. Um, my guy this week is none other than Len Konecki, another early 20th century baseball player, which seems to be just a goldmine of, of guys. Uh, I'll acknowledge my source for a lot of this. Um, it was an article from something called the NationalPastimeMuseum.com, 
which I'm not familiar with, and it also did not list the actual author of the article. But I will say it did list its sources, and it was mostly the actual newspaper articles from the time when all this happened. So um, it gives a very thorough account. So uh, that's where a lot of my, a lot of my material is coming from. That website <laughs> sounds like it's written by ten of the oldest white guys of all time. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, owned by the same people who own Porkfreak.co. <laughs> They're all just sitting in a room with dim green light, like the uh, Guardians from Green Lantern. Um. <clears throat> the short version with Len is that he had what we'll call a short, eventful career that ended in a rather strange way. So let's dig into it. Len, he was born in 1904 in southern Wisconsin. He was born into a railroad family. Um, he himself actually worked for the railroad as a young man into his early 20s. It was pretty grueling work, um, and in his 20s he realizes he has a real talent for baseball, and he tries to make a go at it. <clears throat> so he's attempting, yeah, just kind of a rags-to-riches story. And he debuts with, here's a great old-timey baseball team name, the Moline Plowboys. In Don't 19, Google that. In 1927. Very curious what their mascot looks like, and I do not actually <laughs> want to see it. No matter what it is, you're not allowed to show it to children today. Yep. <laughs> he debuts with Moline at age 23 um, in the year 1927. Uh, 1928, he apparently impressed enough. He joins the Indianapolis Indians, which... Like, the minor league system back then we've talked about was not set up the way it is now where all the minor league teams are affiliated with one specific team. Yeah. But as far as, like, the competition and talent level of this league that Indianapolis was in, it, it was close to, like, what AAA is now. Like, it was the yeah. one of the higher-level minor league teams. Which is what the Indianapolis Indians still are to this day. Yeah. Fun, fun team to go watch. Which team are they affiliated with? I want to say Pittsburgh, I'm pretty sure. I see. <clears throat> Height of baseball excellence there. <laughs> so Len, he becomes a mainstay in Indianapolis's outfield. Um, plays there for a few years, and he catches a break in 1931. New York baseball giants manager John McGraw. Uh, he's with his team. They're playing a series in Cincinnati. And someone tips him off about this really talented Ooh. infielder for the Louisville Colonels. Um, and so McGraw, he takes a day off. He travels down to Louisville to go scout the game. Um, in that game, the Colonels happen to be playing Indianapolis. So McGraw's takeaway, this prospect that he was tipped off about, he decided he was too small. He wasn't interested. But he was highly impressed by this big, strong outfielder for Indianapolis named Len Konecki. And he signs him right away to a big contract, um, which was $75,000. Today, that would be $1.4 which is quite a bit to sign someone for uh, after watching them play literally one game. So... For a future baseball episode, John Muggsy McGraw, definitely a possibility. Yeah. He was a guy for sure, but we would have to do the whole damn episode just on him. There's there's actually like this guy There's this actually guy was another manager the, who appears in this story who is a guy himself, but you are correct about <laughs> McGraw. Let's see. McGraw he, like formed the early baseball landscape. Yeah. Like he was responsible for so much of what baseball was. He also sounds like he moonlights as the moonlights as the town sheriff. <laughs> Muggsy McGraw, yes, it does sound like that. So, 1932 is Lynn's first major league season for the Giants, and pretty so-so. Um, he batted 255, four home runs. He had a really low strikeout rate, but he couldn't draw a walk to save his life. He wasn't a very good fielder. Um, 
So we'll do our first stats nerd thing here. Uh, wins above replacement, for those of you who don't know, is a stat that's meant to be like an all-encompassing stat to uh, to show the value of a player relative to like the exact average player. It's a counting stat you accumulated over the course of a season and then a career. So John, as the most uh, the most stats adept guy here, I'm going to ask you what. How much, according to Fangraphs, how much war do you think that Len Konecki put up in his first season? Uh, so, sounds like he was probably... He was playing left field. A little bit. Yeah. 255, okay, so four home runs. Not not particularly good, and left field's not a great defense position. So, I'm going to say he was negative 0.4. What he put up in the immortal words of Dean Wormer from Animal House... Zero point zero. He was an exact. He was an exact average player. Now, in fairness, he accumulated this over the course of only forty-two games. Why did Len only play forty-two games? Um, in a much more troubling development for Len than his performance, uh, John McGraw had to step down due to health reasons in June after thirty-one seasons as the Giants' manager. Christ. And McGraw, he likely would have had a lot of patience for Len since he was the one who first scouted him. But the new manager, Bill Terry, felt really no obligation to stick with him if he struggled, which he did. And um, two weeks after taking over, Terry uh, sent the slumping Len down to the minors. And that's the last you saw of Len with the Giants. After the 32 season, um, the Giants sold his contract to the Buffalo Bisons of the International League, which was another one of these like high-level... Um, Triple A ish minor league. Uh, they also still exist, I believe. I think so. And I don't remember who they're affiliated with, but I think they're Toronto's because Toronto played there yeah, last year. They're a double A or triple A team now, yeah. So the the Giants botched this pretty bad, but even for some more context, would anybody like to know who the infielder was who John McGraw was sent to scout and decided wasn't worth signing? Would anybody like to know who that was? In the thirties? Yeah. Um it, 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 it won't be. It probably won't be one you can guess off the top of your head. Not necessarily a household name, um, but he was a player by the name of Billy Herman who got signed by the Cubs. And McGraw's take was he was too minuscule to survive the rigors of Major League Baseball season. Billy Herman went on to put up 55 career WAR over 16 seasons and made the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and another interesting tie-in. You know what Billy Herman's full actual name was? Oh. Oh, no. I guess it's not William Herman. Is well, he a billion? It, it kind of is. William Jennings mm-hmm. Bryan Herman. So named after oh. William Jennings Bryan, the famous politician and lawyer, uh, went against Clarence Darrow in the Scopes Monkey Trial, and the most famous alumni of Illinois College. Cody and Jack John and I are tied for second. <clears throat> so the yeah, Giants, that's the unfortunately true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, like, the college can barely even claim it because apparently he hated it there. So... <laughs> Um, so the Giants, they look pretty dumb here, but they're about to look even dumber. Because in 1933, Len absolutely raked in Buffalo. He batted 334, 100 RBIs, 8 home runs. And after seeing this, the Giants' crosstown rivals, the Brooklyn Dodgers, they take notice, they waste no time, and they sign him right up. And so in 1934 season, Len's success continued. For the Dodgers, he bats 320, 73 RBIs, 14 home runs. Um, our second stat nerd thing, WRC Plus is an offensive-only stat meant to be like kind of an all-encompassing offensive stat for everything in, 
you know, involving plate approach and all that. Just a better comprehensive offensive stat than we have. The baseline is supposed to be like 100 or thereabouts. In 1932 with the Giants, he hit 92. In 1934 with the Dodgers, he hit 147. A marked Um. improvement. Um, The Dodgers manager, a guy in and of himself, Casey Stengel, um, he worked very hard with Lynn on his fielding, and that paid off. Now, another stats nerd thing. Fielding percentage is not really a great defensive stat. Because it just goes to show, like, all it shows is how few errors you commit. It does. It shows nothing of, like, how many balls you're able to get to in the outfield, anything like that. But his problem with the Giants was he was just, like, fucking up and making bad plays constantly. Uh, his fielding percentage in 1934 was 9.94. He made two errors and 318 balls hit to him. So his range might not have been that great, but he it was still a marked improvement. He wasn't committing errors anymore. Um, and in that season, he put up uh, a total of five war. So it looked like the Dodgers, they had their left fielder of the future locked in. Unfortunately, this is here's a guy after all. It was not to last. So I'm not sure whether he got overconfident or he had maybe some personal issues going on. But he came to training camp in 1935 pretty out of shape. And that season, he just never really rounded into form. He wasn't awful by any means, but he was just merely okay, which was a, a step down from the previous season. He batted 283, four home runs, 104 WRC+. His fielding wasn't all that great. Put up 1.4 war. Um, the Dodgers as a whole, they similarly slumped in 35. Mid-September rolls around. They are 27 games out of the playoffs. Yeah. So Stengel, he wants to give these younger players some more playing time down the stretch run to kind of reevaluate for 36. So they're actually here in St. Louis. Um, playing. A, uh, they're here for a series against the Cardinals. And what Stengel does, he... Pays Len and two other veteran players, Les Munns and Bob Barr. He pays them out for the rest of the season and sends them home early. He says, "Here's your money for the rest of the for the rest of the year. Just go home. We'll come back next year. I want to give these younger guys some time." So at first, it was really no big deal. They understood, but then it started to sink in a little bit more for Len that it's no guarantee that he will be wanted back next year, and very few players get a third chance after washing out of the league twice. So here's where things really start to go awry. <clears throat> These three veteran players, they board a flight from Lambert Airport to New York, and there's a flight, um, the flight had a stop along the way in Detroit. So Len is rather bummed out by this point, and he handles it the way most baseball players did in the 30s. He got hammered. Yeah. <clears throat> he drinks a, reportedly, a quart of whiskey during the first leg of the flight, and unfortunately for everyone, he is not what we would call a chill drunk. In fact, he's, oh. he is more of what we would call a real oh. jackass. <laughs> he's like your stereotypical like oh no this dude just is pounding a bottle of jack daniels he's gonna be a big problem in 30 minutes he is whiskey drunk oh like, <clears throat> yeah this isn't even like wade boss he's, beer drunk on a he's flight. bar fight is, drunk <laughs> yeah he he starts acting up and getting into it with all the other passengers on the flight a stewardess comes down and tries to to settle him down he just gets even angrier and just pushes her down and when this asshole. yeah, when this happens, the two pilots of the plane they say "fuck this," face down by red jumpsuit apparatus is playing in their heads. They run in <laughs> yeah. and they run in to, to lay the law down. So you might be thinking, <clears throat> Len Kanecki is this big strapping pro athlete who's belligerently drunk. What are these two pilots possibly going to do to him? Well, well th- I mean, 
it doesn't matter how big somebody is, if they're drunk enough and you hit them just right, sometimes they'll just go down. <laughs> I, I've got a Bugs Bunny idea, and I don't want to say it in case it happens, but I've got a very, well, very funny idea. What happens is not a Bugs Bunny thing, so... so okay. What's your thought? I thought they were going to like put a parachute on him and just kick him out of the plane. <laughs> <clears throat> Not kind of generous to assume the parachute. Basically. I mean, <laughs> I figure they probably didn't kill him, but you know, it, it'd just be funny just for them just to like, like you're throwing like Barney Gumble out of Moe's and they just toss him out. <laughs> they threw him out, but he held up a sign that said, oops. Yeah. Down, so it was fine. <laughs> yeah. There, there was a big, uh, like mushroom cloud, but then he came back in the next segment. Um, no, what happens is thankfully one of the pilots happened to be a six foot, 200 pound ass kicker named Jim Hammer. <laughs> oh no that was not his name I, I do not believe you Jim Hammer he's, he's the day you interviewed. fuck up around Jim Hammer is the last day of your life he's just getting interviewed by like local newspapers afterwards so, uh, so what's your name uh, and he's like starting to give a lady he's like Jim Hammer like his voice gets deeper as he's saying it because he just believes himself so much yeah, his real his real name's like Lenny Papadopoulos or something but <laughs> So Hammer, he is able to restrain Len, he shackles him to his seat, and then literally sits on him during the rest of the flight just to make sure, <laughs> extra sure that he doesn't get up and, and, and go anywhere. So they arrive in Detroit, uh, the security, they escort him off the plane, and they just maroon him there. They, they say, but we're sick of your crap, find your own way to New York, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> um, that is that is a, a thing that uh, I think the... Sky Marshals should start doing instead of sending people to jail and bringing them up on charges, just strand them in Detroit. <laughs> so while in the airport in Detroit, Len gets an idea. Rather than fly back to New York City, he figures maybe he can head up to Buffalo and finish out the season with his old friends, the Bisons, just to get some extra work in. Um, a shockingly rational decision, given what you just heard and what you are about to hear. Um... He's somehow able to get a hold of a pilot named William Mulqueeny and charter a private flight up to Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, I know. William Mulqueeny. I know. This, that that's a departed was there, ass was name. There, was there not one there named Patty McIrish? <laughs> <laughs> this is 100%. Whiskey McDrunk. This is 100% like one of those like puddle tipper planes stuffed with like cocaine. This is not a real plane. Well, 1930s uh, cocaine. There, yes. <laughs> there is something interesting about the plane, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention that in a uh. minute. Um, Mulqueeny, he was joined on the flight by his friend, a skydiver by the name of Irwin Davis. They pick up land in Detroit, and they take off for upstate New York. Now, what was interesting about the plane, it was like a small plane. It had a bit of a spooky vibe to it already. The plane's previous owner was a guy by the name of Zachary Smith Reynolds. I may just have to talk about this guy on the show sometime, because it's a really fascinating story. I was not familiar with before researching this but the short version zach smith reynolds was the youngest son of the wealthiest tobacco tycoon in the u.s um he was an aviator in his spare time and uh one night after a fancy dinner dinner party on the reynolds estate he was found murdered most people suspected his um that his uh, uh scandalous popular broadway singer girlfriend had something to do with it but the crime went unsolved so that, or that, maybe Len Konecki thought he was yeah. a flight attendant. Um, so that that's who owned this plane beforehand. So just just to say, the plane had some bad vibes to it to begin with. Um, and in an eerily similar arc to his plane career, Len's bit of clarity at the Detroit airport would not last. 
Um, by the way, Clarity at the Detroit airport is the name of my favorite late 2000s alt band. <laughs> Thank you. I thought it was like a Jonathan Franzen novel. Um, that riff also it works. Seems like, it seems like... I don't know. It, it seems like this guy is like the An worst asshole? kind of unlucky fuck up. Well, yeah, but <laughs> the the worst kind of like feckless fuck up because it seems like he's constantly getting his shit together for like five minutes. Yes, that, that is the story then, of Len. It goes horribly wrong. Um, that's almost worse than never having your shit together, I think. So they take off for Buffalo, and the scene is it's this little bitty plane. It's just the three of them all sitting uh, up front, and the seating arrangement at first is Mulqueeny is in the pilot seat, uh, Len is sitting shotgun, and Davis is sitting behind Mulqueeny. Um, Len decides, for no apparent reason, to just start being a huge pest. He starts n- nudging Mulqueeny over and over with his shoulder, and then he, he does the thing when you're driving with someone you want to fuck with them. He reaches over and just tries to grab the controls. <laughs> Not something you want to do in a I plane. I want to fly the plane! So after that bit, they, he was just annoyed at first, but Mulqueeny's fed up after that. He tells, he says, okay, you, Len, you, Davis, you switch spots. This didn't make things any better. Um, By Begara, son, you're going to get in the back of the plane or I'm going to get me shillelagh. <laughs> so Len, uh, he just starts reaching up and fucking with Mulqueeny's neck, like yanking at it, pushing on his neck. At this point, Davis steps in. He uh, sits next to Len and tries to reason with him and tell him to knock it off. This goes about how you would expect. Uh, quickly turns into a shouting match, which quickly escalates into a full-blown fist fight. Yeah. <laughs> Where's Jim Hammer when you need him? Well, I was just about to say, this flight, unfortunately, doesn't have a Jim Hammer on board. It's just the three of them. And what's more, it's this little tiny plane... And Len Konecki and Irwin Davis rolling around on the ground fighting each other is causing the plane to rock back and forth in the air. It's becoming a very dangerous situation. Um, Jack John, you seem to be be a bit uh, a bit incredulous about this. You, you would think that after the first time you tried to fight somebody on a plane, you wouldn't try to do it on a smaller scale immediately afterwards. That's a lesson that Len really should have learned. It also... <laughs> Unless, unless they just like brought a bottle of booze on the plane, I assume he's sober for this, which just makes him infinitely stupider. Well, I, who's I really, I'm guessing yeah. he got led in Detroit while he was trying to find. I mean, it's a private plane. He was probably drinking, but also, you dumbass. The baseball player in the 30s, and he's in the Detroit airport. I don't think there's a lot of <laughs> dubiousness as far as yeah. his sobriety. Yeah. So. It's, it's becoming a very dangerous situation, and it's looking like they're going to crash if they don't get Len under control. So clearly, this pilot, William Mulqueeny, he needs to do something. And with no Jim Hammer at his disposal, when faced with the challenge of combating a big, drunk, angry pro athlete, Mulqueeny can think of only one thing to serve as an equalizer. That's right. He grabs the fire extinguisher and he clubs Len over the head with it. <laughs> the most satisfying bonk I'm sure that's ever happened. Unfortunately, Lana's, I guess, just bloodlusted by this point. <laughs> and all this does is piss him off even more. Are you sure he wasn't doing meth this whole time? <laughs> He's just raged at his fucking mind. <laughs> and so, yeah, Mulqueeny bonks him over the head, and Len turns around. He's all pissed off. He starts coming after Mulqueeny. And so what happens is Mulqueeny and Davis, 
they just have to they, they just start taking turns bashing Len over the head with a fire extinguisher until <laughs> until finally they get Len subdued and by subdued Ooh. I mean Len dies yes. uh, so that is the weirdest way an MLB player has ever died on an airplane so but the not the only one but certainly the most <clears throat> interesting to, wow. add, to add to the fucked up circumstance the danger wasn't even over They've been on autopilot for so long while the bludgeoning took place that by the time Mulqueeny returns to the controls, they're just stranded over the Canadian airspace. They have no idea where they are. Uh, eventually, Mulqueeny, he sees the bright lights of Toronto off in the distance, is able to get him turned around and make an emergency landing. Yes, Jack? What, what do you tell air traffic control when you're in essentially potentially an unidentified plane? Hey, sorry, I'm in Toronto. I was busy killing a guy, yeah. but I promise we'll be here very, very brief. Well, I was about to so, say, uh, can we get a passenger manifest? Well, about that. Um, one of them's one of them's not here anymore. You're you're in international uh, territory now. What do you claim? Uh, well, my backpack, this other guy, and a dead body. So yeah, I was just gonna say. Mulqueeny and Davis's problems aren't over yet because what has just happened, they have just landed a plane in another country and there is a pro athlete with his skull caved in on the floor. Um, the Canadian authorities actually do bring manslaughter charges against both of them. But they have this thing in, in Canada called a coroner's jury. I'm not sure entirely how it works. It's a product of the British court system. From what I can tell, apparently it's similar to a grand jury. It happens like the onset of a case. After charges are brought, the coroner presents evidence to a jury of people from the community. They consider like what the cause of death is, whether something like self-defense may have been involved. And so the coroner's jury, they see the evidence. Mulqueeny and Davis testify and apparently just like super traumatized and upset from the whole experience. The coroner's jury decides they were acting in self-defense. They vote to dismiss the charges. So Mulqueeny and Davis are released and they finally get to go home. And that's it. And as for Len... We'll never really know what would have happened in his career had this not all gone down. Maybe he was right that he'd blown his last chance. Maybe he'd have been able to rebound. We just don't know. But just to rub the whole thing in even further, <clears throat> all the young guys that Stengel sent the vets home to give more playing time to apparently all just sucked. Oh, no. In 1936, the Dodgers' starting left fielder on opening day was a guy named Freddie Lindstrom, who'd previously been pretty good but was really washed up by this point. The Cubs had just cut him. Lindstrom only played in 26 games. He was terrible in those games, and he retired after the season. The Dodgers were even worse in 36 than 35, and Stengel gets fired midway through the season. So, Casey Stengel's decision in September 1935 reminds me a lot of Stan Smith in the Hurricane episode of American Dad. It made sense <laughs> at the time. You can't really poke any holes in it, but just turned into an absolute fucking disaster. I asked you to go home and get rest. And you hijacked two planes. <laughs> <laughs> and so that is the story of the short, strange baseball life of Len Konecki. Um, my final note, there is a long, tragic history of baseball players acting recklessly in their spare time and getting themselves killed. Obviously, all of us, you know, as fans of the, our respective teams, uh, we've all dealt with this in our lifetime. But this story, Len Konecki, is among the oldest and perhaps the most ridiculous. Um, and so that brings me to my big question for the three of you. Let's hear it out. Who wins in a fight? Jim Hammer or Mulqueeny and Davis armed with a fire extinguisher? 
And it it so takes it, place on a plane. It sounds like sounds like Mulqueenie and Davis had some work to do to put down Len Konecki. Jim Hammer had no such problem, so yeah. I'm still gonna give this one to Jim Hammer. I I've gotta ask, like, what is what is the scenario? Because I imagine that Jim Hammer feels more comfortable on a big plane. I can't imagine he's he's in his elements on like a, like a puddle jumper. I got to imagine uh, home field advantage goes to the men wielding a uh, a fire extinguisher in that in that situation. Let's say it's like a a, a major airline, but like a lower tier. It, it's taking place on like a Spirit airline. Oh God, they all die. <laughs> yeah, the passengers kill them. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, my answer is uh, a somewhat straightforward one, which is I'm not betting a guy against a guy named Jim Hammer, Hammer under any circumstances. How could you? Yeah. Like, if he if he decided he wanted to like start like MMA fighting or boxing, <laughs> I'm I, I don't know what I don't even know what this guy looks like. I have yeah. never seen a picture of him. For all I know, I'm gonna pull up a picture of him. He's gonna have like an old timey mustache. <laughs> it's gonna look like he's. Like maybe like fights with a cane or something, but I would still like my odds with him. He's like the old barrel chested, like put him up here kind of guys. Yeah. He's just like uh, 80 pounds overweight, but it's all muscle somehow. He rides in on one of those huge old timey bicycles <laughs> with the one wheel that's like as big as like a house. He's the one guy who the fisticuffs actually look threatening because you know he's right. reeling up to uppercut you to the moon. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But you mentioned a cane. That's a previous guy I want to see him fight. Preston Brooks. Squash yes. match. Yeah. He'll kick his ass. Say, he sounds like a guy that Bob Potter would love to take a swing at. Oh, geez. That's a battle for the centuries. <laughs> um, the hammer. All right. Well, uh, great answers, all of you. Um, I think I, w- I was most con- – I didn't have an idea. I will say I'm quite convinced by Cody's kind of transitive property argument there. But yeah. – um, the, the other two of you made good points as well. I can't argue against them. All right. So, yeah, Len Konecki, quite the tale uh, to kick off our uh, second baseball episode. And for our next topic, uh, without any further ado, let's turn to our uh, very special guest who, um, whether he denies it or not, does happen to be the one and only John Fleming. John, who's your guy for us this week? First of all, I am willing to admit that I am John Fleming. That's fair. Uh, so my guy is a, uh, a fellow by the name of Ernie Shore. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually quite a few parallels as far as like different side characters to the previous story. Uh, oh, the no. overall arc, I will admit, is quite a bit different. But <laughs> Thank God. Let's, uh, let's get started with it. So uh, Ernie's actually a little bit older than our uh, buddy Ed. He was born on April 24th, 1891 in East Bend, North Carolina, small town about 20 miles northwest of Winston-Salem. Not too surprising given the region, he was born into a family of tobacco farmers. <laughs> that never happens. So, yeah. so, so given what you know about him, the fact that he was you know, from the South in the 19th century, that he's a baseball player, I'll, I'll add in that he's a white guy. Yeah. He might be assuming <laughs> some somewhat nefarious things about, uh, about, it, about Ernie Shore, but actually... Not not really a whole lot there as far as that's concerned. He's actually uh, really didn't like the tobacco farming lifestyle and really aspired to become educated and to go to college and to join a professional ranks, which is extremely rare in that era of baseball hmm. in particular. Surprisingly, I think the odds, yeah. yeah, the odds at that point that you were going to 
be a professional baseball player who like could not write your own name was much higher than the odds that you graduated college. <laughs> but this was the thing that he pursued. And um, in 1910, he actually enrolled at uh, Guilford College, which is uh, nearby Greensboro. Um, if you know anything about Guilford College's baseball program, one, I would be very surprised because it's a Division three program. Uh, two, though, there is one player post-1950s who went to Guilford College that went mm. to the major leagues, and that was uh, former St. Louis Cardinal Tony Womack. So, really? Hey, Tony Womack. So, I are... Wow. Part, part of the really One fun... One of my favorite random characters from the uh, the mid-aughts. The Cardinals, they really they had this fun, really remember some guys-ish, rotating cast of middle infielders for a while. Tony Womack, <laughs> chief among them. I, I think he might be the most remember some guys other than maybe Mark Grzelanek. Aaron Miles oh. up there, too. Which stint? Remember when he came back? Wasn't that fucked? Yeah. Yeah, Ryan Ontario <laughs> in there as well. People just needed more Aaron Miles stint. <laughs> yep. What we were all clamoring for. He's uh, the David Perron of baseball. You just can't get enough of... Uh, just keeps coming back. ...the ravioli, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Ernie Shore enrolled at uh, Guilford College and really didn't aspire to play baseball there. He ended up playing baseball there just because... He had played recreationally before, and he enjoyed it. But he was really mostly there because he wanted to become a civil engineer. And he ended up actually graduating in 1914, which, again, very rare at that time to uh, go into any sort of academic pursuit. And uh, he ended up, though, pursuing baseball as a full-time occupation, as you could probably guess based on the fact that I'm talking about him on a baseball-themed show. Uh, but during off-seasons, he would go back, and actually he would teach math at the college. Yeah. Wow. Usually, if you were like a lot of players had off-season jobs at that point because most players weren't making enough money that they could sustain themselves for a full year on it. But they were generally more like blue-collar jobs or farming, or maybe if you were like a top top player, you could do like um, like vaudeville shows or something like that. But this guy was just like literally a professor. So again, really breaking down some uh, some barriers here. Say, but there, there there can't be too many pro baseball player professor. I think I think the the close we get now is Paul DeYoung hanging out with that guy, Dr. Rocks, <laughs> who apparently is like genuinely a brilliant guy, which was stunning to me to find out. I, I would follow a man named Dr. Rocks anywhere he wants to go. So <laughs> There's I'm a 50-50 chance he's selling you crack, but you know, you'd follow <laughs> him for a little bit. You know, I only buy my crack from someone with a PhD. I'm not trusting that to a bachelor's. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, but and you need higher education to make good crack. If you're going to be getting crack, you might as well get the best version of crack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like a I tattoo. Have... You don't want to go cheap on that. I say there's probably lots of people in the CIA yeah. who have PhDs. It's exactly. Ex <laughs> oh no, it's it's exactly like a tattoo. You don't want to get your crack from a kitchen. You want to get it from a store. Now trying to artfully get my way back to the uh, intellectual baseball player <laughs> from the 1910s off the cross tangent, but no, I'm uh, happy to work my way out of this. Say you've but, listened to "Here's a Guy" before. You can't be that surprised. I, I am not. Don't do not worry. But so before 1914, when he graduated, he actually did get a tryout with a major league baseball team because this was sort of pre-modern NCAA. Normally, like today. If you, if you went to a major league team or any professional team, you would just lose your college eligibility. But mm -hmm. the college actually dictated the uh, rules themselves at that point as far as eligibility. And 
uh, Guilford College said that as long as you didn't become like a full-time professional, you could try out with a professional team. So uh, Ernie Shore was just like, yeah, what the heck, why not? I might as well, uh, you know, give it a shot and maybe I'd become a professional baseball player and I can jump back into the uh, college ranks later. He actually got recruited by a character from Alex's story, uh, John McGraw of the New York Giants. John McGraw um, is in his <laughs> legendary manager, some maybe questionable scouting decisions along the, along the way. We'll get back to that. Oh, no, but, no. Uh, <laughs> the, so, inf- the infamous uh, table that thought. The most deadly <laughs> words in every episode of Here's a Guy. There's one an episode, and it's always fantastic. So, uh, he Ernie Shore was a very good player in college, but again, this was... It wasn't Division Three then, but still that level of competition. So the fact that he had a record of 38-8, and eight, which normally would be like, that's a very good pitching record. Uh, so he uh, actually gets brought in to the New York Giants on June 20th, 1912. Uh, he's brought in to pitch the bottom of the ninth inning against the Boston Braves in a game. And they should, So they bring him into the bottom of the ninth inning. And so there's some good news and some bad news for our man Ernie. So the good news comes in, he gets the save, the Giants win the game. Bad news. The Giants were winning 21-2 to when he entered the game, and Ernie Shore allowed 10 runs during that <laughs> inning. He just gets absolutely demolished in his outing. Now, granted several, of, granted, several of the runs were unearned, but he still allowed eight hits and was just absolutely terrible. And I think it's pretty obvious, looking back on it, that John McGraw decided after the first few runs, yeah, we're not going to sign this guy, but I don't want to waste one of my actual good pitchers, so... We'll just let this 21-year-old kid that I don't that's never going to play Major League Baseball go out there and uh, it, it's that uh, it's that Onion article uh, Little League pitcher just getting fucking shelled. Yep. <laughs> Except it didn't matter. Yeah, the, the closest parallel I can think of is the uh, if you guys remember whenever Mike Myers made his Major League oh, debut for the Cardinals. I, un- I unfortunately do. That was very sad. Yeah. Just got absolutely rocked. But uh, luckily for Mike Myers, he. Um, Rebounded nicely, and Ernie has more story left to go. Okay, so granted, uh, several of the runs that were allowed by Shore were not earned runs, but still gave up a ton of hits, did not pitch well. John McGraw was clearly just like, screw it, we're going to not waste an actual good pitcher on this. And so Ernie Shore ends up, surprised, not surprisingly, not making the uh, the New York Giants. But what happens uh, there... You, you, mean mind, the, you mean the guy who got more than halfway there to blowing a 19-run lead? They didn't want him around. <laughs> Unfortunately, this was not the 1919 White Sox. His time to shine was <laughs> a little bit later. But yeah, in that particular moment, though, I think the Giants—they they, actually—the Giants actually won the pennant that year. So they seem to actually be motivated for good players. So Aaron right. was unfortunately right. uh, an ill fit. What their uh, agenda was, but. Uh, unsurprisingly, they did not want Ernie Shores. They tried to uh, sell his contract to the uh, aforementioned Indianapolis Indians. Oh, and I see. So, but Ernie Shore, as I mentioned before, was still a uh, college student. So he was like, no, I'm not, no, I'm fuck this. I'm not leaving college to go play minor league baseball in Indianapolis. Most people oh. try to avoid getting to Indianapolis uh, and will choose a much more uh, inferior life to do so. I'm glad <laughs> you were the one to say it because I wanted to. I had to. I had to. I stuck the issues there. But, yeah, um, I, I could be the president of a bank or something if I lived in Indianapolis, but I said the yeah. hell with that. Yeah. Because this was uh, pre like Kurt Flood baseball, players did not have a lot of rights here. So uh, whenever Ernie Shore ended up refusing to go to Indianapolis, he ended up getting fined. And the condition of the fine, he was fined $25, which is the equivalent of. 
I did the math, it was $731.23 today. So not like an insurmountable amount, but it as a college a bit, student, yeah. not, and yeah. not, not an amount I would want to pay as a college student, or now for that matter, but uh, so he had to actually pay that fine if he wanted to play professional baseball again, like anywhere, basically just to buy himself out of the, uh, out of the sale. He considered quitting baseball for a while, but ended up uh, deciding he wanted to play in the North Carolina State League in 1913, which was a, a lower level, but he was able to do that while pursuing his studies. Pitched well, ended up signing with the Baltimore Orioles in 1914. And this was not the current Baltimore Orioles. The I almost called them a major league team, but, you know, the team in the AL East. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Currently attempts baseball. They feel, but, uh, they feel the team. Orioles. The Baltimore Orioles are a great example of. Remember, I discussed the Shatner principle a few weeks ago. Yeah, they are. They are that in baseball. Yes, they're endearing they're because a, they're shit. They're a team that sells tickets that say MLB on the front. Yes, yeah, they're a team. But all right. Fewer, fewer reminders of what they are, the better. But luckily, <laughs> in 1914, the uh, the Orioles were actually considered one of the best minor league teams in the country. And they were so good that Ernie Shore played well, as well as a few other players. So they were actually then sold to the Boston Red Sox, who at the time were considered one of the best teams in Major League Baseball. So it was Ernie Shore and two other players who were sold. One of them was a guy named Ben Egan. He had caught in the Major Leagues before, but didn't really do anything after that. Ended up not actually playing with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, the other guy that Ernie Shore got sold with was a young left-handed pitcher whose name was uh, George Ruth. And oh. if you're not sure who if you're not sure who George Ruth is, you might know him by his uh, nickname, which um, I think it's pronounced Babe, maybe. <laughs> Baba Ruth. Babe. Babe. Babe Ruth. Okay. That would have so, been much Ernie... more fun. Telling us about a random guy named Babe. Right. <laughs> so it's a young um, foreign prospect, Babe. He's he goes by one name like Nene. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So um, Ernie Shore and Babe Ruth actually, because they were both pitchers, because they were both brought to the Red Sox at the same time, because they weren't that dissimilar in age, Shore was about four years older than Ruth, they ended up being set up as roommates uh, on road trips. Oh, um, man. These... Can you imagine rooming with Babe Ruth? I'd fucking love that. Yes. I, I, dude, yeah. So there are some people that I think would really love it, because by all accounts, Babe Ruth was a very gregarious <laughs> guy. He loved to party, loved to have fun. Ernie Shore was not a great fit. For, uh, yeah, he's too book. He's too bookish for Babe Ruth, I would yeah. think. He's milk toast. He's just he's just doing math problems. Babe Ruth comes in hammered with three women and seven hot dogs, and it's like we need the room. <laughs> Here's Babe a Ruth math problem for you: one babe, three women, seven hot dogs. What's that equal? Babe Ruth's genuinely asking because he can't figure out the math. <laughs> Probably, yeah. So an analogy that was used um, by uh, Alex last episode, actually, for a different guy that I want to reappropriate, because I've actually heard this analogy used by uh, Sam Miller, a former ESPN baseball writer. Basically, this was a Frank Grimes situation. <laughs> like er Ernie Shore just was a nice, hardworking guy who just wanted to kind of you know, earn his place in life. And Babe Ruth, while a perfectly nice and lovable guy, was a complete oaf. Was completely... So the um, Shore actually ended up asking for a new roommate on the road because at one point Babe Ruth had, without his permission, um, used his toothbrush, which is <laughs> one of the stranger, I guess to be fair, if he'd asked Ernie Shore to use his toothbrush, I'm going to guess that I probably know the answer to that. And 
So whenever it's probably Arnie... a much probably a much bigger deal because he knew where Babe's mouth had been. <laughs> I think Ernie Shore was just concerned because he was getting uh, drunk off of whatever residue was left mm. in the toothbrush. <laughs> you know, water pressure wasn't what it is these days, but so. Um, uh, Ernie Shore confronts Babe Ruth about it, and Babe Ruth's response was, and this is a quote directly from uh, Ernie Shore's uh, Society of American Baseball Research bio, says, that's all right, Ernie, I'm not particular. Which, <laughs> I don't think you're really the, uh, the, the target for that one. Yeah. Old, uh, old George, but yeah, really annoyed Ernie Shore, but he was able to overcome his roommate issues, and pitched really well in 1915, his first full season with the Red Sox. He went 19-8 and with a 1.64 ERA, which is not quite as, like, it was the dead ball era, so it's not quite as amazing as it would be today, but still, right. like, one of the best pitchers in baseball. Yeah. And this was his first full season in the major leagues. Uh, 1916, similarly very productive player. Actually, at, at this point, was a better player than Babe Ruth, because Babe Ruth was still kind of coming into his own. Ernie Shore ended up uh, winning two World Series games in 1916. Red Sox won the World Series in both of those seasons. So Ernie Shore's career is really looking up at this point. So he's playing baseball at a very high level with what at this point is maybe the greatest baseball team ever assembled. And, you know, during off seasons, he's pursuing his more intellectual pursuits. The thing that uh, Ernie Shore is best known for happens the next year on June 23rd, 1917. So on this day, Ernie Shore faced the Washington Senators at Fenway Park. And here is his final pitching line. Uh, he pitched nine innings, mm-hmm. allowed zero hits, he allowed zero runs, allowed zero walks, uh, zero runners uh, reached base while he was pitching. Damn. So nice. About as good as it gets. It's a yeah. good day. Yeah. So you may be thinking, oh, wow, Ernie Shore pitched a perfect game against the mm-hmm. Washington Senators. And for the first 73 years after this happened, you would be correct. However, uh, he actually, in the record, goes down as to having thrown a combined no-hitter because Ernie Shore did not actually start this game. Hmm. So the game was actually started by our old friend and his old friend, Babe Ruth. Hmm. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll let you guys um, imagine how you think things started out for Babe Ruth. Well, I'm just based on that line, I'm guessing he got shelled so bad he didn't yes. even get an out, and then they had to bring in Shore. I as soon as you started reading that off, I was like, somehow this is going to be a perfect game loss, and that's exactly what I'm like. Babe Ruth lets up five in like a third inning, and they bring him in. Well, see, I I, I think you said combined no hitter, so I, I'm guessing they won, but that Ruth had to exit the game early for some silly reasons, and it's Babe Ruth, so I'm gonna say he like over eight and got sick. That's my well, guess. Alex is the- Alex is the closest. I'm not sure that I'd call these reasons silly, but I'll let you guys be the judge of that. So, uh, Babe Ruth led off the game by pitching to a second baseman named Ray Morgan. He walked him on four straight pitches. Uh, Babe Ruth starts just absolutely flipping his shit here. He <laughs> just starts yelling at the umpire. He says that at least two of the pitches were strikes, which I obviously there's no game film of this, but I do know that once Ernie Shore came in, there were no walks being issued, so I don't think this was like too terribly wide of a strike zone. <clears throat> So um, the umpire threatens to eject Babe Ruth, and Babe Ruth says, and this is another direct quote, you run me out and I will come in and bust you on the nose. Oh, no. <laughs> that is a very... Not a thing you say to an umpire. It's a very 30s insult. <laughs> yeah. It's... And then he went around and bopped him. It was, uh, it was quite the scene. <laughs> he socked him a good one. Gave him a knuckle sandwich. 
there was an unfortunate problem with Babe Ruth's plan to bust him on the nose, which is that at this point, umpires were wearing like the full face mask. So he yeah. wasn't able to actually run up. Once he inevitably got ejected, he wasn't able to run up and actually punch him in the nose. He did, however, punch him on the side of the head. <clears throat> Which, um, it was so weird to, it's so weird to read about this story because I remember, I'm a little bit older than you guys, but in 1996, whenever Roberto Alomar spit in an umpire's face, it was like an, like, it was like an international yeah. incident. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ruth just straight up charged an umpire and punched <laughs> him in the side of the <laughs> The only uh. mention that this, the only mention that this gets in Babe Ruth's Wikipedia page is ironically under a section titled Emergence as a Hitter. <laughs> well, I mean... Fair you're, enough. You're not wrong. Yeah. What a lovable oaf. <laughs> it is, is a, was... a genuine tragedy that there's no footage of this. <laughs> well, um, unsurprisingly, Babe Ruth uh, did get suspended for this. I yeah. it, Shockingly. Only 10 games, I gotta say, which... I'm not sure what the current punishment would be, but my guess is probably more than 10 games. It was fine. Was... lifetime ban, probably, <laughs> you hit an official. Yeah, it would be... Uh... Because I'm thinking, like, Ron Artest, whenever he, like... And he wasn't even hitting yeah. officials. He was, like, ran into the stands. He got a book for a year. I so. think it's because he punched the wrong fan. But that's yeah. a different <laughs> issue. Well, and, it, it, and, and I, I think all of us have watched the uh, Malice of the Palace ESPN 30 for 30 doc. Uh-huh. Had he yes. hit that one yeah. fan, and you know the one we're all talking about, he should have gotten, like, a Lifetime Achievement Award. Had, had that Right. Been I can't remember yeah, who did it. Guy, yeah. That guy deserved everything. I think Jermaine O'Neal got him. Yeah. 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 Ron Artest got to join the uh, Kobe Bryant Paul Gasol Lakers as a reward for his yeah. uh, work. <laughs> and has one of the best accidentally elbowing the shit out of James Harden gifts. Where yeah. He just like celebrates and clocks the hell out of James Harden. Yeah, so it's a classic. He, he still got his hits in. So, uh, so Ernie comes in, uh, was not, absolutely not planning to pitch that day, but they bring in Ernie Shore. He pitches five total warm-up pitches. Their first pl- initial plan is to not actually pitch him for the entire game, but he is able to get through the rest of the first inning pretty quickly and then gets through the other eight innings pretty quickly as well. So this was kind of as a perfect game for a while. And as big of a bummer as it is for Ernie Shore, I kind of get why they don't call it a perfect game because one of the players, one of the outs he got in the first inning was the guy who got walked by Babe Ruth, so he got caught stealing. And so okay. technically he only recorded 26 outs. So while I do get it, I get. I feel bad for Ernie Shore. Yeah. Babe Ruth got really lucky here because he's counted by no hitter too, and all he did was walk a guy on four pitches and punch an umpire on the side in the side of the head. <laughs> so uh, a little fun fact to exact to go further on the uh, umpire. The umpires was a guy named uh, Clarence Brick Owens, who actually factors into some here's a guy lore because. First of all, I should mention, he's had multiple separate incidents in the city of Milwaukee while umpiring. This is pre-them being in the major leagues. Uh, in one of the incidents, the story that I found said that he fought off, quote, 50 fans after oh, they approached God. him after a game. <laughs> oh, wow. And that's I, why he got the name Brick. He was just hitting people in the face with a brick, telling them to get away. I, if, if that wasn't the reason, I feel like I really need to know the story, or possibly I would just be terrified of this guy who... I, I feel like if you get nicknamed Brick in that era, you did some shit with a brick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, probably a pretty... Uh... I need to research this further. but uh, um, So the connection with uh, Here's a Guy, actually, though, is this is the same guy, Clarence Brick Owens, 
I should mention, sorry, the other uh, Milwaukee incident is that one time he had a police escort after fans were attacking him, and the uh, policeman got his finger bit off. While uh, I thought about postponing that while so Alex that, wasn't taking a drink, but so that that must have been a tight strike zone that day, I guess. Yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking maybe this guy's not very good at umpiring based on how often people try and kill him. <laughs> It's hard to say for sure, and it's possible that in what may be his most famous incident, other than the Babe Ruth Ernie Shore no-hitter, that it was actually God himself trying to kill him, because he was the umpire on the game when uh, Ray Caldwell was struck by lightning. Oh my oh, wow. gosh. That is a very <laughs> wow. random tie-in. Okay. This guy's been around that for a lot of great Here's a Guy moments. That is, yeah, that is two different uh, later Here's a Guy topics we've been able to tie into that. So he's he's basically just like the Forrest Gump of uh, dead ball <laughs> era umpires, kind of wandering around to different stories. And so, uh, so after this game, Ernie Shore finishes off the season, still pitching really well in 1917. Uh, 1918, however, which anyone who's a baseball historian might remember that that was the year prior to 2004, where he had um, where the Red Sox had most recently won the World Series. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Ernie Shore was not on that team because instead of pitching that season, he actually enlisted in World War One. And there were not a lot of guys who enlisted in World War One for Major League Baseball. That was more of a World War Two thing. Like famously, Ted Williams was yeah. a fighter pilot, and a few guys like that. Ernie Shore is one of the few guys who enlisted who actually like seemed to like take it particularly seriously. He wasn't just like joining the infantry. He went to uh, officer school for the uh, Naval Reserves at a local college in Boston. Uh, that local college was called Harvard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which apparently, apparently was training naval officers for World War One, which is a thing I uh, did not know. You um, know, when you've got the choice to either go win a World Series or enlist in uh, and fight in World War One, I, I can't imagine of anybody who could have possibly flubbed that choice worse. I think he got this exactly wrong. I agree, but also he didn't want to play professional baseball because he wanted to be a math professor. So I mean, I'm true. Sky's priorities are a little fucked. Imagine going to Harvard, being interested in math, and choosing the military. Though, like, I feel like that's also a miss there for him. I'm. I think that he kind of just wanted to do as many different things and succeed as many different things as he could, and not just devote himself to whatever the most fun thing would be. Oh, he's one of those guys. <laughs> Jeez, cannot relate. Cultured asshole. But, um, unsurprisingly, based on his um, academic and his baseball career, he's very successful with his um, his work in the Navy as well. He becomes the only player in the only MLB player to earn a Navy commission during the World War One era. The day after he gets his uh, his ensign's gold stripe, the, literally the day after, the Red Sox uh, trade him to the New York Yankees because the Red Sox truly support our troops. I guess yeah. I don't know, but. <laughs> So this ended up being a pretty uh, significant baseball trade in history just because um, this was the first example of the Red Sox trading away one of their good players to the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously, our friend Babe Ruth, who right. will come back in, don't you worry. Oh. But famously, uh, a year later, he would be traded. But unfortunately, Ernie Shore really struggled when he got to the Yankees. Uh, by both his account and the accounts of others, he really just sort of struggled to um, maintain the physical fitness that he had prior to enlisting. And that he just wasn't—he just was never the same again. But uh, he did provide some value. Trench foot will do that to you. Yeah. 
So he did end up actually having one very important accomplishment with the New York Yankees. And honestly, this might be the more significant baseball accomplishment than the near-perfect game. Because what happened is in 1920, during an exhibition game before the season started, uh, there were, so the Yankees were playing the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Ernie Shore was sitting in the stand, so he was not actually playing in the game, but he was there. Uh, Babe Ruth was accosted by a heckler. Babe Ruth proceeded to run into the stands and threaten to fight the heckler. The heckler pulled a knife, <laughs> and uh, Ernie Shore jumped in between and was able to de-escalate the situation. I mean, I guess it's a story as old as time. Dodgers fans getting in fights in the stands. I guess we should have known this happens. <laughs> No matter yeah. what place it's on, it really is an epidemic. <laughs> what, what? Who was it? Was it the Royals fans who, in like 2002 or something like that, the fans beat the bejesus out of the first base coach? It yeah, was, was the White Sox fans. White Sox, that's right. Yeah. So the the Royals was... the Royals had the the one of my all time favorite baseball images, one of George Brett storming mm-hmm. on the field to accost yeah. the umpire who called them out on. I, I can't totally blame him for being as as mad about that as he was, but so I, I just wanted to survey everybody here and just I want you to try to guess what it was that the fans said that incensed Babe Ruth so much that he felt the need to during an exhibition game just jump into the stands and go, once again go full Ron Artest on somebody. What what was the insult that was being heckled? I'm guessing that he <laughs> insulted the quality of their team's hot dogs. <laughs> Um, yeah, it was a long time ago. I'm going to say like a rat-faced scalawag. I'm, I'm going to go real grade school. They just yelled fatty. (laughs) Somehow the actual answer is dumber than any of your guesses. So, um, the fan yelled at Babe Ruth that he was, quote, a piece of cheese. (laughs) Which is apparently an insult that people used in 1920. I'm not sure if they were trying to say he was fat or if they were like, trying to make some sort of rat illusion, but... Like, he was, like, a wheel of cheese? Like, he's just, like, large and yellow? Like... <clears throat> I mean, by Maybe. the end of his life, probably. Yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I do feel like Babe Ruth gets a little bit of a bad reputation for being more overweight than he actually was, because, like, Roseanne-era John Goodman played him in a movie, so people assumed <laughs> that he was, like, enormous, not just, like, pudgy for a professional yeah. athlete. He was just he's, big. He was... wasn't, like, Prince Fielder <laughs> fat. He was just yeah. big. He was a bit portly. He was he was husky. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to describe it, actually. Which is how you call uh, small fat children fat without hurting their feelings. No, it still hurts. <laughs> oh look, Cody, you get to wear the husky pants now. Don't you feel big? <laughs> Just really I'm twenty-seven. Will you stop? <laughs> Family remembered how there was a baseball player. In like the late late nineties, whose name was Butch Husky, and I'm just giving myself. <laughs> that is an all time great name, yeah. Speaking of names that are probably also shared with porn stars, yeah. yeah. Shout out to uh, Bray Wyatt, who used to his first pro wrestling name was Husky Harris. <laughs> That's true. God. All right, so uh, so after the 1920 season, though, which again uh, Ernie Shore really struggled, he ended up actually being traded from the New York Yankees to the Vernon Tigers of the Pacific Coast League. This was in an era where it was a lot more common for players to be traded to lower-level leagues, but he wasn't able to regain his form there either. He spent some time with the San Francisco Seals, which later on was the team that Joe DiMaggio broke in with, but never really regained his form. And unfortunately, Ernie Shore's baseball career comes to an end at the age of 29. So not a particularly long career, but 
goes on to have a pretty happy life after his baseball career is over, um, but though not at first. So in 1926, he returns to North Carolina. He opens a car dealership in Winston-Salem. Shockingly, the business that was formed in 1926 as a new business did not uh, last very long. <laughs> we were doing so good for like four and a half years. Yeah, certain don't financial events. Happened. Certain financial events happened. I don't really remember exactly what they were, but apparently it was a, a bad scene for the car dealership. Uh, then went on to um, an insurance agency, which also failed. He formed that in 1931, which again, not exactly the best timing to like start a new business. So, <laughs> unfortunately, Ernie Shore's uh, financial life is kind of taking a hit. But things do start to look up for him in 1936 when he runs for. Uh, Sheriff of Forsyth County in North Carolina, which seemed a little strange to me because he didn't really have a law enforcement background. I guess he'd been in the military, but it wasn't like he, like he did have an academic background, but he wasn't a lawyer or anything like that. But uh, so he runs for sheriff. The reason he uh, ran for sheriff and he was very firmly on the record was he just needed a job and no one else was running. <laughs> <laughs> he gets I elected. Mean, at least he was educated. Fuck. Yeah, I mean, there, there may have been a, a lack of people who, um, I guess there were a lot of people in 1936 who just generally needed a job in North Carolina, but yeah. I guess he was the only one that actually had the initiative, so. Uh, he actually does get elected, though, and he serves as the uh, sheriff in that county for 34 years, so. Holy shit. He learned how to do the job. Uh, so, if you're going to be a sheriff in North Carolina, you kind of, there's two routes. You either go, like, the Andy Taylor on the Andy Griffith Show route, and you're just, like, you know, very down to earth and friendly, and everyone likes you. Or you're insanely racist and problematic, like like in the heat of the night, <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Uh, luckily, he goes the former route. Um, had very nice things to say about him. He would walk around without a gun. He would walk around not in police uniform. Just generally seemed to be a pretty good guy. Uh, as for his relationship with Babe Ruth, uh, it seems like it improved a lot over time. Babe Ruth was very complimentary. Said that if it weren't for World War One, Ernie Shore would have gone on to a really great career. Uh, Ernie Shore in 1961, whenever Roger Maris was breaking Babe Ruth's home run record, his uh, single season home run record, said, I hate to see Babe's record broken. I guess most of the old timers do, which is co both complimentary towards Babe Ruth and is one of the few people of that era that was actually willing to acknowledge that Roger Maris had broken the record. But at that point, people were saying, hey, the, the season's longer, so therefore it doesn't count. But Ernie Shore was at least not being a dick about it. Uh, Ernie Shore lives a really long life. He ends up dying at the age of 89 on September 24th, 1980. Yeah, wow. He was the, la the last living member of the 1915 and 1916 Boston Red Sox. I did check to see if he was going to be the last living like Red Sox World Series winner up until 2004, but unfortunately he was not. Um, but uh, by all accounts, just a very lovely guy. Survived knowing Babe Ruth. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> survive sharing a toothbrush with Babe Ruth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the syphilis came on later for Babe Ruth. I don't remember the exact uh, timeline there. But it, I mean, in reality, Babe Ruth is in some ways the true guy of the story. But he's way too famous for that level. So yeah. just the idea of like the nice, quiet side character. Because while I do have certain Babe Ruthian tendencies, I feel like I'm much closer to an Ernie Shore in this situation. Yeah. So. I like to, to root for him a little bit. It almost gives me, like, slightly Pinky in the Brain vibes, where it's just, yeah. like, everyone loves Pinky, and he's just, like, so laughable and oafable, but Brain is really trying his best to hold all of his shit together. 
Yeah, that's what that cartoon was missing. Booze. Would have been much more entertaining, I think. He just needed to carry a bat and have a successful career, and it's the exact same thing. <laughs> I think he goes on to just be like insanely more famous and celebrated and rich. <laughs> a dark turn later on in the series. So I do I do, however, have a big question for you, and this is a very important question that I I mulled over a lot personally. Uh, if you could go back in time and heckle any baseball player in history, who would it be, and what would your insult be towards that baseball player? So the temptation would be to pick, like, Ty Cobb. See, but, that was my first but, thought, but, but that my, didn't go well, Well, historically. Well, and my thought is, like, let's just say I go back to those days and I, I tell Ty Cobb, like, hey, you're a fucking racist. Both he and all the other fans are going to be like, well, yeah, what's the problem? So, um, so instead, here's how I'm looking at it. I've lived in St. Louis for like six and a half years now, but I didn't grow up here. So I, while I'm getting really ingrained in the culture, I, I, I feel like there's certain things growing up, you know, not here, I missed out on. So I'm going to, going to relive a, a, a big part of St. Louis culture. I'm going to go back to like 2002, three ish, and I'm going to call Tino Martinez an asshole. You know what? Fair enough. I'm going to call him a Yankee and an asshole and a prick. So, there we go. I think calling him a Yankee would also be a good way to get one of the racist baseball players of yesteryear mad at you. So. <laughs> Probably Fair true. enough. Or just stash it. Um, for me, so my first thought was also Ty Cobb, but then I remembered that sometimes he would fight fans in the stands while still carrying his bat. Yeah. So, um, I'm going to go with John Rocker. I'm going to call John Rocker That's a, a mullet-headed hillbilly asshat. Um, if so my first instinct was to not pick a player but to pick uh, former Marlins owner Wayne Hazinga who we've mentioned already and I'm just going to throw pennies at him and call him a cheap ass <laughs> fair enough that's starts picking all the pennies up and he's like yeah. oh I can afford to keep Mike Piazza now huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, but if I have to pick a player I'm going to be out in the outfield and I'm going to keep yelling uh, ridiculous things for Manny Ramirez to do in the middle of the game yeah so, yeah, it's like heckling slash encouragement. Yeah. Yes. And I'm going to be like, Manny, you should play the next inning naked. And he probably will because Manny going to Manny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm just going to keep yelling that at him every game until he does it. Are you doing this on top of the green monster and you have to like, get like a blowhorn so he can hear you? Or? <laughs> I'm just, I'm in Boston, so it's not going to be uncommon for me to be loud and obnoxious. So I can just scream it the entire now, game. Now, if I go back and I watch the clip, uh, the time Manny Ramirez inexplicably cut off that throw in the outfield. Yes. And I look up in the green monster, and there's a guy who looks like he's about 20 years like into the future with a megaphone. I'm going to know that you're up to some shit. Yes. It's... You, might just, you might just assume it's like a young Marlins man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Manny was a very level-headed player until I got my hands on him. So you're responsible. Yes. I'm the guy he high-fived on that one pickoff play. <laughs> Where he caught the ball, like, high-five. Didn't he, like, high-five a fan and then throw to home or some shit mm-hmm. like that? Sounds right, yeah. All right, so my guy is, I'm actually going with a pretty tactical answer for who I'm heckling. Um, I'm heckling Kurt Schilling, of course. Yes. Oh, yeah, uh, great. Part of my reasoning for heckling Kurt Schilling, because, like, Schilling, while a complete asshole, is not, like, literally the biggest monster in baseball history. Like, he's never actually murdered someone, but... He is the thinnest-skinned person in baseball yes. history. 
if you're somebody with like 20 followers on Twitter and you just like tweet LOL, you suck at him, he will like go scorched earth on you for it. Yeah. But what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to go back to the 2004 World Series Game 2, which he pitched against the Cardinals. And I'm actually not going to insult him. I'm going to uh, just dress up as a giant bottle of Heinz ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> to uh, play up to the fact that he um, definitely poured ketchup on his sock during the ALCS, the so-called bloody sock. Yes. God. for that. One and of also, the, this is like a... Yeah. One of the most miserable broadcast, baseball broadcast experiences of my life. God, that I sucked. think that might actually give me PTSD if I were to see it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but also, in addition to the fact that I can make fun of his bloody sock, this is also like a week and a half before the 2004 presidential election. And uh, oh, Teresa wow. Hines Carey seems like somebody that he would have really, really hated just because... Well, she's a woman and affiliated with a Democrat, so yeah, yeah. I think yeah. it would really rattle his cage. I don't think this is going to turn around the result of the World Series. I think the Red Sox would still win it. I'm hoping to postpone the World Series long enough that Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore can't run out onto the field to film the end of Fever Pitch. <laughs> All I need is to get to Game 6, and I can avoid that fate. If they win the World Series in Fenway Park, so be it. I can live with that. Not have to deal with that stupid movie again. <laughs> that really is a shit movie. Um... Yeah, that was... I, I also had toyed with a similar idea. I thought about Aubrey Huff, but I could not come up with a specific insult for him because he's just a clown. Yeah. A yutz. Let's play the song D-I-V-O-R-C-E by Tammy Wynette over the last <laughs> you, you do what the Jaguars did to the cult this year, and you get an entire section of fans to dress as clowns, and somehow that makes them lose. <laughs> it Was it... Yeah, was it that or was it Carson Wentz? <laughs> you, you have to. Whole fucking circus, man. The, the Colts <laughs> we'll are a fucking circus. Year. As I sip whiskey in a Colts glass. Mm-hmm. It's the only thing you're allowed to drink out of that. Uh, I've got a, Mar- I've got Marlin shot glasses too, just which just shows that sports drive me to alcoholism. All right, well, uh, yeah, wonderful topic, John. We really appreciate that. Um, and uh, that means we got one baseball topic left. And for that, we turn to Cody. Cody, who is your guy this week? So this one is a little less lighthearted and goofy than a lot of my topics are. But it's a story that I think every baseball, uh, big baseball fan needs to hear. And really one that I think only big baseball fans are cognizant of. And I think that needs to change because this was one of the greatest what if stories in the history of baseball. I'm talking about Brian Cole. Yeah. And and I'm going to pull back the curtain slightly. I have been wanting you to do this topic since basically when the show started. In fact, I think, I think even in like our, our like pre episode zero, I mentioned this as a good one for you. The reason why is because it's such an interesting story, and you were the one who told me about it at first. So, mm-hmm. um, and I know I, I remember you are super interested in it. So, um, I, I, I've been looking forward to you finally yeah. uh, getting getting around to this one. I'm pretty sure I've heard this brought up at least five times on how <laughs> Cody's eventually going to do Brian Cole. Yeah, yeah. So the reason, uh, while we're pulling back the curtain, the reason I became interested in this story is because I read a fantastic article Sports Illustrated did about 10 years ago on this guy. I had never heard of this this guy before in my life, and it's just a, such a great and ultimately tragic story. I've been like wanting them to do a 30 for 30 on this guy 
since I was familiar with the story, but as of yet, still no real mainstream coverage of, of this story outside of that one Sports Illustrated. I will have Alex probably link that on the Twitter account. But Brian Cole was born in 1978 in Meridian, Mississippi. And he lived in a baseball family. And I mean that in about the most literal way you can. His father was a standout. (laughs) Close. His father was Pee Wee Cole, a standout semi-pro baseball player, a shortstop and pitcher. Also, his name was Pee Wee. I just fucking love that. Um, His family lived and breathed baseball. His mother literally went into labor at one of Pee Wee's games. He was almost born on a baseball bat. That is poetic. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, uh, his mom was able to get to the hospital in time for delivery. But yeah, he was almost born, like, literally right behind home plate. So that's how deep the baseball roots run in the Cole family. Um, both of his oldest brothers were Division One baseball players. Um, and his other brother was more of a different sport athlete, but he was a freak athlete as well. So Brian grew up playing baseball with like a broom handle and those things that we around here called gum, uh, gumballs, Alex, if you yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah. The little tiny, almost like weightless brown spiky things. Yeah. 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 yeah what trees do those actually come off of? I don't. I would have to. Oh, I, I can find our dad, an answer our, for you. But. Our dad is going to be so upset when he hears it's this. The I'm most sure like Midwest country thing where we all know what we're talking about, but we've all grown mm-hmm. up calling it different things. But the, he the, grew up. The, the sweet gum tree is the colloquial name of it. Gotcha. So, all right. So, yeah, that's why they're called gumballs. That makes sense. Um, so Brian grew up playing baseball against guys like this, and also the guys on his father's semi-pro team. This was apparently a very informal league where just anybody who showed up could kind of play. They didn't get paid. It's, so, it's like a church Sunday league almost. Yeah, basically. Very but, semi semi-pro. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So. When Brian was 15, it was the year 1994, and those of you baseball fans will know the MLB was on strike. And a lot of players were keeping in shape by playing baseball in these kinds of leagues. Mm -hmm. One day, Brian, again, just 15 years old, got a chance to hop in a game against Reds pitcher Johnny Ruffin. This is a major league relief pitcher. Ruffin apparently was known for his just filthy slider he was one of the first guys that threw a slider over 90 miles an hour with like good movement regularly so ruffin had this filthy slider and he was just throwing it to everybody apparently almost nobody could touch him um so late in the game brian cole pops in at 15 years old he is five foot four he weighs 130 pounds First pitch, Ruffin throws one of his signature sliders that he claimed had to be at least 92 miles an hour. Brian hit it 500 feet into the trees. Fuck. I would not have thought such a thing was possible for a 5'4", 130-pound human being. He had to turn on that motherfucker. God damn. Yeah. This is pre-Jose Altuve hitting home runs, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and Jose Altuve has got about 30 pounds on this guy yeah, at least. There's a, a lower I was precedent. Say, same size. A lower precedent for short kings hitting bombs. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, to be clear, this was what people who were there who were not Brian said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Ruffin also later claimed that he checked out the pitching rubber and it was actually only 55 feet from home plate instead of the standard 60. So the pitch probably looked more like 97 or 98 than 92. Brian was one of those guys who's, he's just meant to play sports. Growing up in Mississippi, again, he's from Meridian, Mississippi. He was an all-state running back, which in that state, holy shit. Yeah. You got to be pretty good. (laughs) From the South, where they make football. Mm -hmm. Mississippi and Texas are two of the biggest football states. And Bama, of course. Yeah. He was heavily recruited by Division I football teams, but his real love was baseball. However, despite the fact that he broke the team record by hitting 22 home runs his senior year, he didn't get offers to play Division I baseball. He was small. His grades weren't great because he was one of those kids that just didn't really give a shit about school. (laughs) He was drafted in the 36th round of the Major League Baseball draft in 1997, but he turned down the offer and went to play baseball and football at Navarro Junior College. Uh Now... Navarro is one of those junior colleges that is a pretty good baseball uh, pipeline. He played with at least one former major leaguer. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember Brad Hopp, who went on to be a pretty good player for the Colorado Rockies and then a garbage player for the San Diego Padres. Yes. Both those things Um, are true, yes. As most players who go to San Diego do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, especially in like 2008 or whenever this was. Yeah. So, um, Hop remembers Brian Cole showing up right after football practice. He went to football practice, went straight to the baseball diamond, and on their first day, uh, raced against their fastest player and outran him without even really trying. Just a physical freak of nature. He, by this, by this point, has uh, risen to his full adult height. He's about 5'8", about 170 or so. So, again, really small, but yeah. crazy fast and had incredible power. Right. He played one season at Navarro. He played 60 games. Anybody want to take a guess what his, his line was, average homers, RBIs? I'm, I'm guessing he uh, he's batting 350. He's putting up at least 30 home runs. And I only say this I, because I, I hear the legends of Brian Cole. I was gonna say four hundred thirty. I'm going. I'm going like four fifty. I'm. I'm a big believer in this guy that I just learned existed. I'll say about. <laughs> I'll say about twenty bombs. Sixty games, batted five twenty four, hit twenty seven oh, home Jesus runs, drove in eighty two, and stole forty nine bases. Oh my nice. god! <laughs> How did he get on base that many times to steal bases if he was hitting that many home runs? That's what I want to know. Some bombs well, because eventually numbers. they started walking him, and then yeah. he would just steal his way to third, so they stopped doing that eventually. <laughs> um, so one pitcher... It's like the Barry Bonds thing, but with an extra step. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. There was one pitcher he faced, and I think this was actually in high school, but he got a college recruiter showing up to uh, his house for exactly one reason, because he... Uh, this recruiter had saw him throw one at bat in which he struck out Brian Cole. Now this pitcher who never went anywhere, what he says, what he didn't see was the next at bat in which I threw a slider that he said slipped out of his hand, missed up and away by about a foot. And then Cole hit it 450 feet over the right field wall. Goodness gracious. Just unbelievable. So Cole's OPS was yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually Cole uh, would be drafted by the New York Mets and uh, finally sign. He got a hundred grand signing bonus and finally decided the time was right. Um, he was assigned at first to rookie ball as all draftees are, but he didn't last there very long. Played one season, absolutely tore it up, as one might expect. This was 1999. In 2000, found himself all the way up at Double A. Now, when he got to Double A, for what was probably the only time in his life, at first he struggled to hit. He was hitting about 159. But another thing they talk about with Brian Cole was his ability to adjust and eventually figured out whatever it is that was wrong had a torrid last three months. You, you just couldn't keep this guy uh, around long. A pitcher that he faced during his time in the minor leagues, a fellow you might be familiar with by the name of CC Sabathia. Yep. A little bit. Says <clears throat> Brian Cole, uh, he talked about pitching to him. And besides what we talked about so far, he said his hand-eye coordination was maybe the most impressive. You just couldn't throw a ball past him. And he says, uh, and this was well into his career, he told uh, told them that Brian Cole is the reason I developed an off-speed pitch. Yeah. So, that right there, impressive. So We have him to blame for the fact that the Yankees won the World Series in 2009, is what you're saying. <laughs> Damn it! Just Ooh, we're starting to like this effect. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. So there's one strike against Brian Cole, so to speak. A rare um, one, it seems. <laughs> yeah. He's going to turn on the next one, though, and it's going to go opposite field. Mm-hmm. He was named the Player of the Year in the Mets organization in 2000, and they considered him one of the three cornerstones to their organization, along with uh, another couple of guys you might have heard of, Jose Reyes and David Wright. Yes, to name a few. <laughs> and they thought Brian Cole was the best of these three, by, by a reasonable margin in terms of potential. Despite all this success and just being a big shot athlete, Brian Cole hardly ever got into trouble. He didn't party much. Um, he just loved hanging out with his teammates. They didn't go out to clubs or bars. They just like hung around playing Madden. They, he had a great relationship. Everyone remembers him as just a really good kid with uh, this great big personality and this electric smile that lit up a room. Heading into spring training 2001, there were two, two prospects the Mets really wanted to look at in spring action. Brian Cole and another guy you may or may not remember named Jason Tyner. Hmm. Jason Tyner played a little bit of Major League. I think spent a year or two with the Twins. Um, But Tyner was another big shot prospect whose main attribute was his speed. They were both outfielders and they were both among the fastest players in the organization. And all of the guys at spring training this year just talked about how much they wanted to see Brian Cole race Jason Tyner. Well, they did. Tyner, again, just got a million-dollar signing bonus, mostly because he was so fucking fast. When the race finally happened, not only did Brian Cole win, but he turned around and backpedaled the last 10 yards and still won. It was a 60-yard race. Jesus. Um, he's been talked about, we talk about the, uh, major league players that talk about him in the, the article, Albert Pujols among them, 
course, a name we are quite familiar with. Mm-hmm. Says he is one of the best right-handed hitters he's ever seen in his life. Former major leaguer Heath Bell, actually. Um, Pujols was the one that told uh, the reporters to talk to Heath Bell. He's one of those guys that collected bats when he was a pitcher. And his prize piece in his uh, collection is the one that's not signed. It's one of Brian Cole's bats, and he never got to sign it, unfortunately. But Heath Bell still has it, still considers it the crown jewel of his bat collection. Now, in 2001, neither Cole nor Tyner would make the club out of spring training, and Cole started the season assigned to double-A. On the drive home to Mississippi... Brian had uh, took a little bit of an unusual route. A lot of people figured he would fly, but straight to where he went. But he wanted to go back to Mississippi. He was one of his problems was homesickness. He was prone to being homesick and um, really missed Mississippi. Really missed his family. So he decided he was going to drive and stop by Mississippi. Turned out to not be the most fortuitous decision. At some point during that drive home, another driver unsuspectedly veered into Brian's lane. Brian and his uh, 15-year-old cousin who were in the car. Um, Brian immediately lost control of his Ford Explorer. He had to swerve onto the median to avoid the car, and when he got back onto the road, couldn't keep control. His seatbelt failed to lock, the car flipped repeatedly, and Brian was ejected, and unfortunately died a few hours later in the hospital. All of his friends were absolutely crushed. He's got several teammates, actually, who have children named after this guy. That's what an impact he managed to make in his short time in baseball. Since he never actually saw the majors, for a long time, Brian Cole was one of Major League Baseball's best-kept secrets until this piece came out about 10 years ago. Um, Statements from Pujols, Heath Bell, CeCe Sabathia, and many, many others Um, including several other major leaguers, in addition to numerous coaches and scouts, including Mookie Wilson, who still says this is the best player I've ever seen. And Mookie Wilson knows a little something about baseball. Yeah. Seen some players. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's he's seen some stuff. I seem to remember there was a guy, I don't remember who it was, but it was someone who had been around both, said Brian Cole was better than Ricky Henderson, which is an an unbelievable bit of praise. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and if you if you believe all the stories, that's probably the case. And and how tall so, was Cole again? Five foot eight. Jeez. Five eight, about one sixty, soaking wet. So that ends the the ballad of Brian Cole. Um, but I, it's it's one of those stories that you just you wonder, <clears throat> what if? And there's a yeah. lot of those stories. As Cardinal fans, you know, we know. The pain with Oscar Tavares, yeah. uh, you know, also the Angels with a guy like Nick Aidenhart, you know, it, it's just it's uh, Jack John, you yeah, know, as well as anybody with Jose, Jose Fernandez, Fernandez the, yeah. the Royals with your Jordano Ventura, the list goes on and on. You know, it's just one of those things where you you wish a guy had had the chance to have a career. So, my big question to the three of you, to kind of add some a little bit of levity in the situation because the yeah. story is a little bit heavier than a lot of the ones we cover. So you're a blue chip major league baseball project pro, uh, prospect, a guy like Brian Cole and your career is suddenly derailed and injured by something that is not injury or death. Yeah. <clears throat> what would you like that to be? 
Easy for me. They find my podcast. Here's a guy. <laughs> I, I'm gonna. I think. I think it's Jonathan Papelbon, but like to the tenth degree. I like after every pitch that I throw, I'm just gonna yell "fuck" so loud <laughs> that they that no team can reasonably put me on a broadcast. <laughs> like I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna swear. Too often and too loud. You become ungovernable. You're the first professional sports. You're the first professional sports player to be mic'd down, yeah. right? Like, like, like. Sometimes you get like an errant like "fuck" that like comes out, but like every play, I'm yelling "fuck," and like it's it's like a, it's like a tick, and I can't help it. And like I, I go through therapy, and like they try to figure it out, but like I just want to say "fuck," and I scream <laughs> it every pitch. You pretend you've got Tourette's, but you really yeah. just like messing with people. It, it, like, a lot of people think the velocity comes from, like, the hips. It comes from yelling fuck. And I figured that out, and they want to silence me. My favorite uh, baseball player's swearing pattern still to this day is Steven Piscotty when he played for the Cardinals. Because yeah. he could never say yeah. just goddamn it or fuck. It was always one goddamn it fuck. <laughs> it's like slurred together. That's Stanford education. It was the sort of intellectual... Um... Yeah burst of uh linguistics coming yes, out exactly <laughs> i think the thing that's going to derail my career is that i just decide to step away give it all up become a math professor at guilford college yeah there you go yeah. <laughs> there is precedent for that one yeah brain too so, big can't be athlete only with guilford college it's because for me it's because um i'm gonna be playing for the milwaukee brewers and I'm going to get too drunk in the clubhouse on a day that I'm not throwing and go out and tackle the winner of the sausage race. <laughs> and it's going to be a huge Simon? embarrassment. Is, yeah. Isn't it Milwaukee that has the big ass slide? Every time you're up to the plate, you're just on the slide instead going down. <laughs> they can't keep you off that damn thing. It's got to be so hard to keep away from that. Yeah. Oh yeah. It looks so sure. fun. Good answers. All right. Well, that wraps up uh, a spectacular, um, another one of our special themed episodes. Um, we hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. Um, so, yeah, we uh, expect to be back next week with uh, most likely a regular episode. But for now, let's go around the horn and hawk our shit. And, John, you are our guest, so we'll start with you. Where can the people find you? What what kind of stuff are you doing out there? All right. Uh, you can find me at uh, on Twitter at JohnJF. J as in John, F as in Fleming, my last name, 125. Uh, you can go to um, my uh, the baseball blog's Twitter account, STL Bullpen. Most of the tweets are from me. Sometimes it's just links to articles, but mm -hmm. uh, some good stuff, some other not good stuff, but it's Twitter. What do you expect? And then the uh, website itself is uh, stlbullpen.com. There's a lot of articles going up. I've been kind of busy. haven't been able to do as many articles in the last uh, week or two because I work at an accounting firm full-time, and it's April 12th. So. Yeah, tough time of year for you. <laughs> yeah. not, not the best uh, correlation with opening day, but once the season gets in gear, then uh, it'll uh, be full speed ahead. But uh, yeah, check it out, stlbullpen.com. Fantastic. Cody, how about you? Uh, you can find me over on Twitter. I am at sonofgravy42069. Um, you can also find me weekly here on Here's a Guy on Spotify and Anchor and Stitcher. Um, also, you can sometimes catch uh, the three of us over on Jack's Twitch channel, playing a little Dungeons & Dragons with our buddy Pookie. In fact, I believe, uh, I think this episode most likely going to go up on uh, Wednesday morning, so check it out the following evening. I think we're going to be wrapping up our, our campaign on Thursday night, so... 
Um, and on that note, Jack John, how about you? Yeah, people can find me on Twitter at Jack John Jose. Find me on Twitch and YouTube at Jack John Plays Games. Uh, catch the D and D finale, and we'll probably announce uh, something special that we're all working on again uh, during that same stream. So catch out the live announcement of that. All righty, and uh, for me, you can find me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin the number four P R E Z. Follow the podcast account as well. That's Here's a Guy Pod. Um, as a little bonus, if you uh, look up my name and STL Bullpen, uh, I wrote some articles there back in the day, including a, a few that were very much in the spirit of this podcast. Um, so definitely the Brad Penny one, I think in particular, is really... Uh, I, I've, I've thought about actually discussing Brad Penny on the show at some point, but I don't want to just be a rehash of the article, which is what it would be. So, I love the idea of you... Uh, doing Brad Penny, but then just citing yourself. Yeah. I love that idea for you. And in an amazing source. article by me, I say that this happened. Well, the, the the particular notorious incident is one I did watch on TV, so I am a <laughs> oh source for it. Oh my god. Um, oh. Let's talk about Brad Penny. So cool and, yeah. That was so cool until it wasn't. Um, also, uh, yeah, I think I think the St. Louis bullpen show, it's it's almost ancient at this point, but I think it's still out there if you want to go listen to some old episodes. So, um. Yeah. Some of the audio is a little hit or miss, but it is out there. The last episode we did was um, right after COVID hit, and yeah. therefore baseball wasn't happening, and therefore we ran out of things to do. But I hosted a game show for the last yeah. episode. I remember that. You can uh, hear some good Cardinals trivia. Yeah, for sure. Spotify. Also, uh, I'll mention this. We, uh, we have a Gmail account. Here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us whatever you want like it enough we'll read it on the show so once again thank you all for joining us um to wrap this whole shebang up cody do you have a tagline for us it's a simple one but yes i do all righty and uh so yeah thanks to you all for being here we hope to have you here again next week thank you so much to john for joining us it was a wonderful time and so to put a bow on this whole thing cody what's your tagline good night everybody and happy baseball Happy baseball and RIP, yeah. RIP Gilbert Gottfried. Have a good night, everybody. Bye, babies. Bye.